We interrupt your regularly scheduled vibrant for a very important public service announcement. <laughs> Marvelous demystifiers, placenta casserole. We got a lot in the oven for you tonight. So hopefully you catch, you caught the last time we talked about Loki. We got into episode one of this series. I intend to break it down in a very granular fashion because this is one of those things that seems to prove that what we talk about in symbolism is real and is known by those who are putting the programming out there into the world. It's a mountain of evidence. You know, the lie dies under the weight of its own details. You got to take a look at the each and every one of the thousand cuts. And even if you never saw the show, part of how we do this is to take it step by step through the plot of the series and just really break down what we, we are seeing there. And it's a great jumping off point for learning about and having a reason to talk about various keys to the esoteric system and the mythos. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dom says, never watched it, but last week was really interesting. Great work, Chance. So going forward, maybe slotting a few Marvelous Demystifiers into the vibrant time slot so that we can get through all of the goodness that is this show. I will say, I actually like this show. It bears... uh you know, affection upon rewatching it. You don't get <laughs> burned out. You don't start to hate what you're seeing. The characters kind of grow on you a little bit. It's fun. So, and Dylan's here. That means we can start. Welcome everybody else in the chat. What's up? I love, I love your music, buddy. Zerlath, good to see you. Everybody else that's there. Mr. E, sound off in the chat. If you're here, share this with your fa favorite uh, comic book aficionados and occult researchers. Man, if you ever told me that as a, you know, when I was in my 20s and early 20s and really into comic books and college that I would get as my job, I'd get to <laughs> break down esoteric stuff from comic book shows. I would I would have been stoked about that. It's a great job. So how are you doing, Gabriel? Welcome aboard. Choo choo. Doing great, buddy. Real good. Looking forward to this one. Yeah, the Loki thing is uh, it's really fascinating to me. Um, the signs in the signals are kind of all there you know i've been but this coming through on my second watch i'm seeing a lot more uh indicators along the lines of like pre-crime you know i didn't really think of it in that context the first time through but now because they're like you know uh maintaining a timeline capable of traveling through time it makes me think a lot more of um uh what was that uh with tom cruise uh, oh, Minority Report, man. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I'm kind of thinking of the Minority Report parallels. Uh, but yeah, this is this is good times. So I'm glad we're taking our time. I hear you said you had 93 pictures. <laughs> yeah, I've got 90. My PowerPoint is half a gigabyte in size. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Now how many? Oh, let's man, see. Let's how many it. pages of notes here? Uh, three, four, five, a solid seven pages of notes. In my word pad. <laughs> yeah, man. 93 Illuminati confirmed. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, I'll, I'll do my best to be concise. And I may even skip over a bit of the details that I picked out. There's, you know, when you do this type of analysis, it takes you all day or a couple days because you really have to just pull out every detail that you see. And, you know, some of them might seem a bit irrelevant at first. 
but they're showing it to you. So you got to think about it. And then as you go forward, you're like, okay, they're showing me this again and a third time. So there must mean something here. And there's occasionally clues in like gematria, in the Enneagram, astrology, all of that stuff is in the mix. I do hope to see the, you know, standard, amazing comments from our, our viewers who a lot of you've probably watched this, maybe saw it after you watched the last uh, Marvelous Demystifiers. You went and caught up on this show or started into it. So please hit us with your best weaves in the uh, the live chat or in the Telegram chats or whatever. I, I trust that <laughs> I won't miss anything too good. I'm sure Jennifer will be watching out for those. She's been a really good help, too, as we rewatch these things and decode them. You know, she notices things I don't. And anyway, we better get into it, buddy. So this is episode two. It's called The Variant. The previous episode saw Loki getting uh, becoming a time criminal by breaking off of his destiny and creating an alternate reality parallel universe timeline through his choices and his free will. He gets picked up by the time cops, the TVA, the TAV, Time Variance Authority. We've talked about this for four hours, so uh, go catch up on that. But we saw it by the end of the episode that Loki had basically uh, made his decision to cooperate, you know, <laughs> and that's where we begin here. So uh, as as is always very important, we want to be quite, quite observant when we look at the opening shots. So the very first thing we get shown is. Some people dancing around the maypole. The maypole is a symbol of the world axis, the axis mundi, the world tree, Yggdrasil, right? And Gabe, I'm just going to go through my notes. So please just raise your hand or, or actually probably just speak up, you know, if you need to add to it. Otherwise, uh, I'm going to just cruise right through. There's so much here. But this world axis, world tree symbolism is important because the sacred timeline is depicted like the trunk of a tree with timelines branching off of it. Now, with this maypole that they're dancing around, some have argued in the past that that is phallic symbolism related to the, the worship of the Roman Priapus, who is very much similar to Hermes and the Herm statues in the sense that... <laughs> You know, he's got a giant phallus. <laughs> he's got a real club on him, the <laughs> third leg. Uh, this point of this point is also kind of symbolic of the birth of uh, a new year in some ways. Although I think Beltane, where usually the, the dancing around the maypole takes place, has to do with like the halfway point between the spring equinox and the summer solstice, something like that. But the important thing to know is that Loki is Hermes. He's the savior myth. He's the Buddha. All of the mercurial figures you might be able to name. That's what this character represents. And Hermes or Mercury's mother is Maya. So we've got the Maypole. And we're thinking about the birth of a new Loki because he's changing as we go into this story. Um, interesting, too. That the Germanic name for the maypole that they're dancing around here is the Maybaum, which in my opinion is very close to the Maya Brahme, which is the, you know, the ultimate androgyne, the unification of the masculine and feminine generative principles in the Hinduism mythology. So Brahma being the 
the creator, father, Maya being the illusion, the the substance, the stuff, the world. So it's like spirit and matter. It's yin and yang. Also in uh, <laughs> in Hindu mythology, Maya or Maya Sura is the king. So it's a masculine Maya, the king of the Danavas, which were a demonic race. And one of the things that this Maya was famous for was his brilliant architecture. So I'm thinking the TVA, you know, they have very interesting architecture. You could call it like brutalist style, like that old Soviet style, uh, quite demonic <laughs> in a lot of ways, just purely function and no beauty. Then the other thing to consider about Beltane and why I'm going on about Beltane is because there's other little symbolic winks to the idea of Beltane throughout this episode. Bell is Lord and Tin or Tain is the Etruscan name for Jupiter. So Beltane, Lord Jupiter, Lord, Lord God, another way of thinking of it. Bello can also mean white, bright or shining and Tene can mean fire. I believe this is in like the Celtic or ancient Irish. Uh, my notes are as concise as I could make them. So we're also considering like, you know, the bright fire, the shining one. Now we got to also think about Oshkosh, Wisconsin, which is where we're you know being shown that we're at here. Oshkosh was said to have been named for the Menominee chief Oshkosh, whose name meant claw, and the the native Ojibwe word that Oshkosh came from is a little hard to pronounce in English, maybe because it's transliterated weird, but it's Osh. Kanza, which is basically Ashkenaz. <laughs> and that's the rabbit hole in all of itself. How many different cultures have a version of being descended from the Ashkenaz and the, the chiefs, the, the rulers, the kings, the princes, etc., being Ashkenaz. So here you have the chief Ashkenaz. <laughs> Ashkenaz. So that's important as well to keep in mind. Uh, Ashkenaz had a great fire in 1875 in April. I thought that was maybe interesting to note because how many places have had great fires that burned down that potentially were older settlements from pre-European contact or whatever the old world civilization might have been here on this continent. Every time you see the great fire, you got to keep you keep your keep on your toes. <laughs> great fires burning stuff down. There's also the uh, children's clothing line called Oshkosh Bagash founded at around the same time as the Great Fire. That's very uh, suspicious anytime you have like children's fashion, right? You got to consider the potential of what may be going on for the child models and all that. Another interesting thing to point out is that Mark Grunewald, who is a famous editor of Marvel Comics in the 80s, is from Oshkosh. And Mobius, to skip ahead a little bit. Oh, here's my slide on the maypole. I totally lost the plot there. There they are. There's around the maypole. <laughs> yeah, Mobius, though, Owen Wilson's character, he's actually made to resemble Grunewald, Mark Grunewald, the famous editor of Marvel Comics from the 80s, who was from Oshkosh. So there's these are the type of little things that if you follow the breadcrumbs that this show lays out, it's very rewarding because you find out, oh, Oshkosh is connected to this Mark Grunewald guy. Mark Grunewald is stated to be the inspiration for Mobius's look. So it all kind of comes together for you there. 
another thing about Oshkosh is that it's famous for its aviation museum. And if you recall from the last episode, there was a whole thing about D.B. Cooper, about Loki being D.B. Cooper. <laughs> so we were made to think about, you know, in, in, in context to like timelines and hijacking timelines, controlling timelines, controlling public opinion and, and the future and all that. We were made to think about uh, planes getting bombed. I, I'm not saying I'm bombing a plane. <laughs> For the for the robots scanning this episode, I'm just we're just talking about it. And in um, so I, I've, I'm keeping my eyes open for any links to things related to aviation and accidents or crashes as we go into this, because it seems to like be skirting around the edges repeatedly. Uh, and in 1985, actually, in Oshkosh, there was this Midwest Express flight 105. That was, it was in September, not April, but still same year, same, same place. And 31 passengers and crew were killed whenever there was a, a plane crash. Yeah. And I, so we're thinking about that. Uh, since there's all this illusion being that Loki is the God of mischief and illusions, I thought it interesting to point out, um, you know, I'm going to just read a little bit here that about that plane crash, the crew may have wrongly perceived the nature of the emergency. It said that uh, an engine blew up or something since the explosion of the engine caused the loss of engine thrust. The speed of the plane decreased. The rapid deceleration caused the crew to think that the plane was pitching down, which may explain why the crew made a nose up input when in reality it didn't pitch down. This phenomenon is known as a soma. Somatogravid, somatographic <laughs> illusion. However, instead of fixing the situation, the nose up input that the crew made only caused the plane to decelerate even more. The pilot may have suffered spatial distortions, distortion immediately after the emergency. So there's this thing in aviation where there's illusions that befall the crew. They think they're feeling something with their body and with their inner ear. But actually something totally different is happening with the plane. And when they go to compensate based on their senses or this illusion, they end up making the problem worse. So one of the examples of this is the phenomenon known as the graveyard spiral, which is characterized by the pilot mistakenly believing that he or she is in wings level flight when the aircraft is in fact engaged in a banking turn and notices the altimeter indicating an ongoing drop in altitude. The sensory disorientation of returning from a prolonged banking turn to wings level flight can cause the pilot to re-enter the banking turn as in the graveyard spin illusion. So, (laughs) right. Uh, And two of the most famous cases of aircraft mishaps with this spatial distortion was the 1963 crash that killed the singer Patsy Cline and also the very famous 99 crash that killed John F. Kennedy Jr., Oh man! Wow, you got six, you got six, three, and nine, nine in the years there. So you got a six, three, nine when you combine the years. Uh, heavy names like those names mean a lot to a lot of people's families. Um, but I have to point out the coil, this the coil shape of the plane going down. Loki's name is an anagram for coil. Oh, good call. Also, 
Yeah. Also, and a lot of people who are into rock and roll, their ears perk up when they hear the word coil. But the Maypole scene, when we come in in the beginning, that Maypole, uh, the Maypole that I did, the boys and the girls go in different directions and they crisscross when they come on uh, to each other so that the the ropes end up making a coiling pattern. Uh, it's a really cool, beautiful mesh at the end of the ceremony. Uh, so oh, here's Jenny another points coil. Out that the, the Mobius strip is basically a endless coil. Also awesome, 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 awesome. Oh, is there a last good call? Loki is the father of the world serpent that wraps around the world tree, coils around it. Nice. That's what's up, buddy. That's what's up. If there's one thing lacking from this show, being that it's about Loki, there's not a lot to pick up on about Norse mythology itself. So that's kind of a side weave. If you notice anything like that, people out there, go for it. Let us let it rip. I'm sure there's yeah, I'm sure there's stuff that we're missing on on the Norse mythology front. And, you know, one thing about uh, before we get too far away from that Anazazi uh, and Ashkenazi and uh, Ashkash, um, uh, I've, I've been to Chaco Canyon and Chaco Canyon was once a very ag- uh, agricultural, lush, uh, thriving community for a very long time. In the late in the civilization's uh, story arc, there were interlopers who came into the territory and they were called the Anazazi. And the Anazazi had the filed teeth and they were, uh, they were. And the name Anazazi basically means enemy tribe. You... So I just, I, my ears perk up anytime I hear like Anazazi, Ashkenazi. And then of course we got the Anunnaki, you know, these things all have this similar echo that, uh, that actually resonate with different, uh, you know, spiritual, scientific, historical uh, echo chambers. But it all sounds very similar to me. There's so much good stuff in the chat right now. So Kyle points out that the maple seed falls in that coiling death spiral <laughs> that the planes we just showed. So that's very relevant. Also, maple. Is that the uh, is that like the Celtic name for it? Acer? Because Acer also is the name for God. It's the Asir in Norse mythology. It's the Etruscan word for God. Uh, Joe Potter says Kali. That's definitely a phonetic anagram for Loki. Dylan says Loki comes from, some say Loki comes from Logi, which ties into Log, the spiritual fire, which is where we get Logos, as well as the Yule Log, Beltane, meaning bright fire, Yule Log. Very good. So there's lots going on. You guys are, yeah, you guys are sharp. Another yeah, thing from, awesome. uh, to add real quick, Gabe, Lewis Hine mm-hmm. is from Oshkosh and he's a, a, from around the same time as the great fire. Uh, when he was born, he's an American sociologist and muckraker photographer. And his photographs were instrumental to passing the first child labor laws in the United States. So that's an interesting thing going on in Oshkosh. That is interesting. And he's got the word shine hiding out in his name. If you transfer the S over and he works in light, if he's a photographer, he, he's, he's a craftsman of, of light. But that is really interesting. Yeah, child labor 
is a, an untold part of our history that's probably one of the least tapped into uh, arcs of conspiracy culture. You know, we know about the, the founders, we know about the foundlings, we know about the orphan trains and the uh, um, incubator babies, but I think there's so much more to be said. Yeah, why were the, why was there so much child labor after these great fires? <laughs> does it have to do with right. the, does it have to do with there being a lot of orphans shipped in? Right? Yes. Yep. Also, Maybe child I labor mean, ended because most of the orphans grew up and stopped and there weren't as many orphans anymore. Right. And also maybe, you know, maybe the difference between minors and minors isn't as clear cut the further back you go in time. Uh, there's a lot to that. Um, and now we also know that the that the potato famine was manufactured. I mean, yeah, the sky's the limit when it comes to finding out what's up with what's really happening with the kids in the labor. So referring to Lewis Hine, our friend Lewis says the standard online etymology of Lewis is that it's a combo of Lou and Bellinus. So Bellinus is like a, another Jupiter type figure. So the connections are just popping out, man. <laughs> I love you guys. We're, we're the right type of schizo. This is fun. So the next <laughs> shot that we get after getting the time and the date or the place and the date is these monks. And I thought, you know, that guy in the middle really looks like, is this Klaus Schwab making a cameo? You got to remember, this was filmed in 2020. A lot of this, maybe some was filmed in 2019, but a lot was filmed in 2020. That actually becomes kind of relevant later. But yeah, there's Klaus Schwab. <laughs> now, I wanted to point out. So these guys. They, uh, they're they're legitimately tonsured. That that uh that haircut that they have is called uh, being tonsured. Right, they they're not say, even. It's not even a wig. It's a real tonsure. Yep, yep. And they say that, and this is a myth. But the Merovingians had this tradition where, when the king would ascend to the throne, he would have to tonsure all the other potential uh, throne candidates. Uh, so that they would never have a chance of ascendancy. So being tonsured means you're an unworthy for the crown, but it also means that you're really a good candidate for the cloth, for a life uh, for the cloth. And that's that's one of many origin stories to being tonsured. I think there's a lot more to it. Well, it's sort of like a toned down version of castrating your competition, especially when you think about like the myth of Samson. And if I'm not mistaken, the legend about the Merovingians or uh, maybe it was a different ruling family. But I think the tonsuring as what they did, you know, it was basically like a, an improvement over what they used to do, which was they put out the guy's eyes. <laughs> that might not be about the uh, other pretenders to the throne. That might have been in reference to if a king deposed another king, then they tonsure that guy. But, uh, you know. Basically, though, what you're saying, there's there's a lot of stories about that. Now, I wanted to point out the tonsure because it's a major evidence of the diffusion of whatever the universal or interconnected world system of priesthood was. Because you see the tonsuring or the shaving of the head, either fully or partially, when joining a monastic order or joining the clergy of any kind. See that with the Celts, the Catholics, the Orthodox the Orthodox Christians, that is Buddhists, Hindus, they all tonsure. Susan is correct. It is very unattractive. 
um, the fact that Moses in, I think in Leviticus forbids tonsuring all but proves that the Jews once practiced it. Why would you forbid and outlaw something unless people were doing it? And that's because the Jews were essentially a, an offshoot of Buddhism at one point that kind of went its own way. And in Judaism, they call somebody with leprosy, the Metzora. And part of the purification process for the Metzora is a ritual of shaving the entire body, except the leprous locations, the afflicted locations. Islam also forbids tonsuring, but at least the partial shaving and leaving hair in some areas in the Quran, it says the prophet commands shave the head entirely or let the hair grow entirely. This is either to distinguish Islam from the other cults, but, or probably though it's forbidden because the people who were doing this practice were, you know, idolatrous in some way. And that's what Islam, Islam is the old system just brought back into a form of kind of purity where, you know, things devolved over time and more and more become more and more fetishized. I think Islam was just basically a return to the old ways, not it seems like it seems like the newest of the the religions, but I think it's actually like getting back to the roots of what the system was before. You know, probably something like that. Could be wrong. The uh, interesting thing, though, is there's this writer that that Dylan references in his sixth Spirit World book called uh, his name is Gamara, Gamara, and he wrote La Historia de las Indias. And in it, referring to the Peruvians, when the Spanish got there, Gamara says, they are all very like Jews in appearance and voice, for they have large noses and speak through the throat, making themselves bald like monks, except they shave off the hair from the front and back of their heads and allow it to grow on the sides. So that's a very specific thing to be finding in Peru. (laughs) supposedly a whole different part of the world, different civilization. And uh, that guy Gomara goes on to say something along the lines of the, the Mexicans or the, the natives of middle America. Um, I could be getting the quote wrong. Go read Dylan's book is great, but that they, their laws and their system of governance and priesthood was more like Judaism than Judaism was like anything else known in Europe or Asia. So, and we, you get to go through all those connections in that book. So, but the reason symbolically, you know, to get back to the show and the plot, the reason we're being shown the tonsor is because what it symbolizes when you're joining a monastic order is that you're leaving your old self behind. You're leaving your old life behind your old identity behind. And that's what Loki is doing in this show. At this episode, the first episode, he was, you know, classic Loki, pretty evil, you know, (laughs) and in this episode, he's leaving his old self behind and becoming the new version of himself. (laughs) Yes, they are literal dickheads, especially the Klaus Schwab guy. (laughs) Ah, So funny. Oh, yeah, I had slides about this. Okay, so here's some Hindu people with a tonsor. Here's a Celtic stone head from Bohemia, allegedly from around 150 to 50 BC, which is looking a lot like a tonsured head to me. 
Now, like the versions of it differ. They don't all do it the same exact way. But the fact is shaving part of the head and leaving part of the hair is generally what is done. Although like modern Buddhists just shave the whole head. Still, the, the idea is of shaving the head when you leave your old life behind. And then, of course, I was just a classic monk. Now, uh, here we go. The next shot we get of importance is uh, you see this druid guy or wannabe. <laughs> He's got his staff. He's got his horns. Those horns, remember, they rep- represent radiance they were of the sun, the cornucopia, abundance, fertility, all that stuff. He's got fangs and his arms are scaly and reptilian or serpentine. Now, I brought up here the Phoenician letter uh, and the Hebrew letter shin, which in Hebrew, the letter shin means teeth. It means sharp and it can also mean repeat. So I find that interesting because we're talking about time being an endless loop, right? And so the idea of repeat is important. Why I am showing the shin here is because I thought, well, these fangs are they are probably important. And as the episode unfolded and I kept looking at stuff closely, I realized, yeah, <laughs> this the way that Tav, the letter Tav, and to some degree Teth were really important last episode. It seems like this episode, the theme is shin and teeth and sharp and repeat. So... Uh, the other thing that's important about, oh yeah, the proto, the like the the Phoenician, the Phoenician uh, shin, what became the Hebrew shin, was pronounced supposedly to the Canaanites more like a T or a TH sound. So that's another important clue to the interchangeability of the S S H T T H sound. That you can do a letter swap. When you see an SH, you can turn that into a T. When you see an S, you can turn that into a T. TH can be an S, SH, the TH, and the SH. I know it seems like it's, it might seem a little stretchy, but that's a, a legit thing that happens between languages. And the, the Phoenician to the Hebrew is a perfect example of that. So great thing to keep in mind. You know, uh, I would weave onto that. Um, you know, this character has got the bullhorns. We're uh, starting off with the maypole. Uh, so uh, the may uh, very much relates to the Taurus uh, character, but also above the, uh, above the bull. Okay, so the Taurus is the Hierophant card relating to the bull, but also I correspond the Aeon card to uh, Odriga, the charioteer, who is above the bull. Um, so I would say, uh, yeah, that we're very spot on because on the Aeon card is the Shim letter. The letter Shim is at the toes of the Aeon child on that on that tarot card. Uh, so yeah, I would totally uh, concur with your with your uh, hunch to put put the Shim in correspondence to Homeboy here. Well, I didn't even think of that. I'm just pull, just looking up an image of the Aeon card. Yeah. And you are correct. <laughs> so Aeon and that Aeon is the Mobius, the Mobius strip. That came up in the last right. episode. Nice weave, dude. Man, I got to get more yeah. familiar with that Crowley tarot. 
In, Especially now in, that I kind of have a decent handle on the Hebrew letters, the, the Thoth Tarot, uh -huh. I'm probably ready for it. I think it would be handy. Yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting one. Uh, and knowing the difference of what you know, what that card would be in the Rider Weight deck, actually informs me. It's like a strange math problem where I'm like, subtract a, a literal horn, and you got to find out where is the metaphorical horn. Uh, well, so the elements are still there. They just kind of switch languages. <laughs> so let's go ahead actually and get a picture of the Aeon card on to the screen because you just caught something that justifies a lot of my opinion about this episode. And I totally missed being not thinking about the Crowley Tarot. I totally missed this. So All right. great weave. I don't know if I can get a super high res image, but let's see here. You know, I'll, it's been on my it's been on my program also. Like I just recently did the uh, um, that the Economist magazine cover with the uh, dive bombing uh, parag paragliders. Uh, <laughs> I just did a whole episode on that, so it's been on my uh, on my table lately. And I'm realizing the Aeon card, which again is Auriga, who is just above the, the horns of the bull. Um, Do you see the I'm connection between the screenshot and this card? Yeah, man. Look at that. Look at that. See, it's the shape of the helmet, actually. But it's, it's, yeah, it's even, there's even a chin strap, though, kind of, too. But the, the specifically, is like, this is this is C20 and XX 20, man. 20th card. XX, good fucking catch, buddy. That's actually Look all that. throughout this episode. This episode is riddled with trying to get you to C20. Do you see 20? Yeah, do you see 20? It's constantly asking you, do you see 20? <laughs> and that's 20, what this character's hindsight. name that we see here. She's called C20. It's awesome. This is great. Uh, so that that archway, it is like a, it's so much like our helmet. It's amazing. Um, but it is a uh, the symbol for the lunar node. The north node is in this that shape. It kind of looks like a like a shackle or a cuff that's not that's not locked in place or a cobra's hood. The back of a cobra hood has this coiled. Uh, horseshoe with uh, little emptied spirals on the end. So yeah, and then uh, it's got the big the big titas the the tits in the sky. The <laughs> those are literally uh, the Milky Way is in right. Taurus, the initiation of the Milky Way. So having big boobies hanging out in the sky is like uh, very erotic, but also very uh psychosexually impeccable i'll say it that way and i guess there's a backup crowley aeon card where where is this coming from lou i'm gonna put it up but this also informs quite a lot i mean you have that same shape with nut or nuit arched over the uh the as the cosmos you know that's maya that's the mother of buddha and What's interesting are these three figures almost like being birthed out of leaves. 
fact that they're coming out of leaves and then the scales, all of that is very interesting. But <laughs> thanks for sharing that. I'm going to actually jump past this, though, because we have so much to talk about already on deck. I could I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about with uh, these Crowley cards. But C20, that's important. Watch out for C20. XX, it's all over the place. Next, we see the uh, the ale winch of the tavern. And when she sees the TVA guys, she's telling them, you know, some of us need this. You know, you're not dressed up the way you're supposed to and you're hurting the vibe. But why? Why did I grab a screenshot of the tavern and this ale winch is because the very next shot or the very next scene is them going into this tent, which is the tabernacle if they've, they've entered the tabernacle if you do the if you letter swap v and b which is very allowed then tabernacle is or, or sorry tabernacle is tavern tavern ackle so and you recall the tav it was very important to the previous episode and it's the cross it's the it's the x marks the spot uh, also makes me think, reminds me of the whole tabs being bills and all the tabs that were being shown in the previous episode. So the tabernacle, though, is the, you know, the dwelling place of God to Judaism uh, and a few other Abrahamic religions. And it's there's a, a thing called the Holy of Holies with the tabernacle tabernacle see i keep switching it accidentally it's so easy to do uh and if you enter the tabernacles holy of holies without you know sanctification or whatever then the spirit of god that dwelled in the holy of holies would kill you or make you go crazy something like that um <laughs> and as they're walking around with their time sticks out this shot doesn't capture it perfectly but there's a split moment where you see three of them all with their their beaten sticks and the silhouettes, because they're just silhouettes in this shot, totally resemble Priapus with the giant phallus. It's it's completely there. <laughs> the reason I grabbed this screenshot specifically, though, is because you really see this prominent tent pole with the three lamps. And actually, I didn't grab a screenshot of it, but I did later because it comes up again, which tells me it's important, was that there's a pony equus a horse shown that's got a, a drape with the fleur de lis and that's what i think these three lights are it's the triple crown you know triple crown of of bell yeah. or bale yummy yeah and also that's the the castration thing with the uh the pawn shop lo logos and the mickey mouse scar always with the triple the triple orbs exactly exactly uh, that's a good call. Yep. And it, you know, in uh, one more weave, I, I wrote this down in my notes was the last episode we uh, we left off seeing this rogue Loki character as a, a hooded uh, robed character in a field with a with a lantern, and the lantern was thrown on the ground and started a fire. So that was definitely the hermit card. So we're we're entering the fall. And at the end of that last episode, uh, going into for the closing of the scene, for the final scene, uh, here we started in the spring 
but they've now gone into the tents. So they've, uh, uh, and again, we're going to jump around. This is still the beginning of this episode, but now we've gone into the intense and the intensity kicks on in the anticipation and the music in this, uh, this battle scene is, uh, is, uh, it's ritualistic. It's totally ritualistic because even the music is like, I need a hero is the music that they, that they play. And then she gets, well, I'm, I'll let you, I think you, you got a couple of things to say before I say what happens at the end. Yeah. 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 I will walk through it. Just jump in whenever what you're thinking of pops out. But speaking of entering the Holy of Holies and losing your mind, <laughs> she walks into the, this is C20. She's in the temple, right? And then she gets touched on her temple right here, touched on the temple and she loses her mind. And, you know, it begs the begs pointing out why does this left or right part of your head, the specific spot, why is it called the temple? Why is it the tempula in Latin, which is temp meaning time? I think that it's possibly a reference to the third eye chakra that sits at that level, because in the biofield, the third eye is your it has everything to do with your connection to the past and to the future. You imagine the future in your mind's eye and you see the past through your memories in your mind's eye. So calling that spot right at the level of third eye in your head, the temple makes a lot of sense. It might even be evidence of the ancients having the same understanding of the biofield as I'm describing here. Maybe I don't think it's a coincidence. And then of course, you know, your body is the temple, the temple of God, so to speak. And yeah, you brought up that song, <laughs> Holding Out for a Hero. I need a hero. <laughs> and that song is kind of interesting, uh, being that it was, it's by someone named Bonnie Tyler, and it was actually written for the Footloose soundtrack by Jim Steinman. <laughs> Because all all these songs uh, are written, that are hits are written by somebody with the last name Stein or Man or Berg, and in this case, it's Stein and Man. <laughs> uh, and this this fight scene that they have here is interesting. There's a lot of piercing with phallic objects that goes on for sure, and also. Okay, so we have castration is in the mix, right? We're thinking about the possibility of castration and castration rituals. Well, I also thought it was interesting. I went and watched the music video for this song from like the 80s or whenever. The uh, Holding Out for a Hero by Bonnie Tyler. And the music video has a lot of imagery that resembles the final scene of the previous episode. We're in that Oklahoma, Old Westy uh, nighttime with flames. A lot of that and also a lot of like muse imagery, interestingly. But I, I looked into Bonnie Tyler a little bit <laughs> who sings this song and I guess she had a distinctive voice change all of a sudden where she became very husky in her voice. And I don't know that anybody knew her or she was well known or famous at all before she had a very, as it's called, husky voice. <laughs> Weird. Uh, and she claims that she had vocal cord nodules on her vocal cords that she had to have surgically removed 
But here she is in 2022 receiving her medal to become a member of the Order of the British Empire. Either that is a man who became a woman or it's a, a plastic surgery disaster. I don't mean to make ladies feel bad about the fact that, you know, they look different as they age, but there's something very off about how she looks to me. <laughs> Doesn't look good. Yeah. She got, the other she song you might that, uh, know by her is Total Eclipse of the Heart. Yep, totally. Uh, yep, that one hits real close to home from, from the childhood days. She's got the uh, Kamala Harris neck thing going on, man. There's something up with all that plastic surgery. It adds up somewhere. <laughs> Louis says, Total Eclipse of the Heart is one of the most legendarily insane music videos of all time. It's an 80s cocaine acid trip. <laughs> I didn't look into that one. Uh, and then Dylan pointed out that here's the met this medal she's holding has got a quadruple fleur de lis, and he says that's a Dominican symbol. And the Dominican friars have to do with like I believe they're, they're nice. the Spanish. They're a Spanish wing of the Catholic Holy Roman Empire. Yada yada. Yeah, I I'm not saying it, but Matt's saying it. Transgendered male, maybe. We're thinking about we're thinking about castration rituals here. Who knows? Could be, and and you know, uh, the eclipse of the heart. Uh, that's really significant because we know about eclipse magics. You know, I think they do a lot of work to keep us syncopated to uh, fear response around the eclipses, and I think they drum it up and intensify it on light cycles. That, uh, that we're tuning into our ancestors subliminally, but through a social engineering kind of uh, style. But it's really hitting a note because that song pulls on heartstrings. It really pulls on heartstrings. I, I often think about how auto-tuning has probably been long weaponized since before I knew it was a term. And I'm just now developing the language to describe what might have been like really uh, fascinating potentials around music from my childhood, from my own uh, younger, more tender days. <laughs> I'm kind of inclined <laughs> to agree with uh, Thunder Chicken that it's probably just too much Botox. I think a lot of people are a little too quick to call everybody transgender, but who knows? We sure don't know. and. Yeah, a lot of mileage out of two or three hits to be, you know, accepted into some strange or <laughs> nightly order by the queen. Very bizarre. I don't know. Actually, maybe it wasn't the queen. Was the queen still alive in 2022? When did she go? Anyway, not super relevant. So then this hooded cloaked figure who is the, the bad variant picks up the temp pad off of one of the killed minute men even the idea of minute men you know we haven't really mentioned this but that's what the name of the tva's stormtroopers are the minute men and that just takes you right back to the idea of the revolutionary war and revolution means a cycle or a circle so that's in the mix but i thought that the resemblance of this tempad to an iphone was pretty important because in terms of the sacred timeline which is the approved official narrative of human human history and our story. Our iPhones have become our our access to the sacred timeline. You know, like 
<laughs> I feel like a lot of the <laughs> people know more about the official story on things than ever before. And we're quicker to defer to the authority story about things because we have access to it within reach right in our pocket. Yeah, man. You know, I, uh, I had a fun breakthrough today about author 80 author authority. Mercury is the 80th element. And so isn't it fun that we go to the messenger for authority so easily and so readily? Uh, in, in the cell phone is totally the, uh, the touchstone. We've, we've woven on this a lo- uh, for a long time now. But there's a particular constellation on my mind now that becomes the touchstone, the commonplace, the shared public forum. Uh, becomes the podium that the that they come to address the people at, um, and it's the Ara Altair constellation. Uh, so it weaves into so many things for me now. Uh, going back to and including the melted steel beams on nine eleven, uh, and the monolith from uh, uh, Daz, two Dazain one space odyssey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, speaking of 2001 and 9/11, there 9/11 shows up in this episode very clearly. And the portals they walk through are monolith shaped, you know? Yeah. They're like golden monoliths. It's it's, it's yeah, pretty consistent. There they go. And it's also kind of like a death's doors idea because this hooded black figure is essentially like the grim reaper who is time, who's Kronos. That that's I think we're meant to see that with the like the hooded cloaked figure for sure. And the next thing that happens is I want to point out the dragging out of the tabernacle. That's actually the part of the reason why they have to wear a chain on their ankle when you're uh, in the tabernacle is in case you get zapped. They need to be able to drag your body out by the rope around your ankle. So getting dragged out of the tabernacle is again, confirming the weave you started on when we came into the room. Wow. That's good call. Yeah. See, this is why we're a good team. (laughs) And, And now I've got something that I need you to expand on because then from this, everything goes black and you get the, in the opening, like opening theme music and the, show logo or whatever and while everything's still black you hear ding and you know if you're reading the subtitles if you have subtitles turned on it's bell dings (laughs) the bell dings oh my god there it is (laughs) it is the pavlovian response the bell ding that's a great chance that's so great so yeah if anybody hasn't heard it before We've got a huge thing about uh, what is the Pavlovian sound that your school uh, trained you to close your books, change the subject, move on, stop thinking, and enter into child trafficking. When you're going in between your classrooms, that's child trafficking. So there are all these trigger words, and you're walking between classes. Well, you grow up and it turns out like child trafficking sends you into a terror, uh, class warfare, battle between classes. All these terms go back to the bell ding in the Pavlovian response, including when people want to talk about the buildings 
of 9-11, they want to change the subject, close the books, let's not have, this is Thanksgiving dinner, damn it. How dare you talk about 9-11 on Thanksgiving dinner? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, a lot, of tri- a lot of triggers are built into the words we use around our education experience. Uh, yeah, Jenny tells totally this funny purpose. story about how when she was waking up to the world, she went to a wedding with some friends and uh, like after the wedding or during the, the hangout around that time, she was like all stoked to get everyone to watch architects and engineers for nine 11 truth. <laughs> and that went over pretty poorly. <laughs> Super funny. <laughs> but I wanted to point out that from MK ultra, there's a couple of famous bells with MK ultra. You have attorney general Griffin bell who conducted the MK ultra hearings in 77 and you have Harris Isbell, who led much of the MK Ultra drug experimentation, at least was the, you know, the face of it. And he's who we're told was running a lot of that. But on top of that, Bell Ding, if you swap the T and the D, Bell Tang. Bell Tang. Nice. Totally. Totally. And uh, those priests who go in the tent are supposed to wear bells on their robes also. I think 10. I think the bells are supposed to be 10 bells. Bell Tane, I think. And this guy, he looks a lot like um, Maxwell Jacobson, uh, the Dr. Feelgood who made placenta methamphetamines. <laughs> but he's got an interesting name there, Harris. Right? Yeah, Horace. Harris is. What hours? And, uh, time. Yeah. It, and then. And uh, bells mark time, too. Church bells mark time. Yeah. Yeah. I dig it. I dig it. Yeah. Belding building. Dylan gets it. Everybody's getting it. There's a lot more to be said between the lines. So I'm hoping you guys are, are having your own mind explosions here. So after the belding, then we get shown this jet ski magazine. (laughs) And in case the connection to bells ringing in school wasn't clear, Loki is sitting here getting schooled. He's having to watch training videos for his new job, essentially. Now, they have the jet ski here. This is at Mobius's desk. So this is Mobius's magazine. Um, it's volume 26, number four of whatever this magazine is about jet skis. So that's a 30. If you do 26 plus four jet ski. And everything I reference in terms of gematria is septenary gematria because that's the one I prefer. I don't like, I, I figure stick with one, don't add a bunch of ciphers, otherwise it gets too hairy. And maybe some of the gematria I throw out here is irrelevant coincidence, maybe not. But the fact that jet ski equals 30 and there's the jet ski here with a 30, if you add together the 26 and four, made me think, okay, I'm going to keep my eyes peeled for Gematria here and there as I go through this. And I think it's worth it. But remember, this is Mobius's desk. It's his jet ski. He's the TVA employee who's handling Loki. And he dreams about jet skiing. <laughs> you know, that's his dream, right? He, he's always daydreaming and fantasizing about jet skis. So I decided to look up in dream interpretation symbolism. What, is, what do they say about dreams about riding a jet ski? And riding a jet ski in your dreams is said to mean that your feelings and opinions are changing. They're they're varying. (laughs) 
So and the, like the water aspect of this is also important, like flow and all that. But the fact that you could look up the jet ski symbolism in the dream, he's dreaming about jet skis and it perfectly describes what he's got going on means we should be thinking about all the symbols in this show for their subtext. Clearly the subtext is, is written in there intentionally. So Loki's getting quizzed on <laughs> Nexus events, branches off of the timeline, what it means if they grow past the red line. Apparently it means the destruction of all reality, the collapse of all reality. So we have this little orange, reddish orange plate <laughs> circle lady, Miss Minutes. And he asks her, are you a recording or are you alive? And she says, sort of both. and. To me, this is important because she's like a guardian spirit, right? She's non-physical. She's whispering in his ears, very like the Islamic choir in. She's watching everything. She is a recording. To me, I'm thinking about the chord of the placenta, of course. She is a disc. She's disc-shaped. She's alive. She guards the timeline. I feel like... We've talked about it a lot in the past, but in terms of what the placenta may be physically or at least symbolically is that it's your it's your t- lifeline, your timeline. It's got the contains some kind of knowledge or energy or strength from your ancestors. So it's a guardian, of course, when you're in the womb. Right. There's so much that can be said about this. But I think that question of are you a recording or are you alive to, to me subtly? is hinting at like think start thinking about the placenta (laughs) and there's enough things later in the episode where i'm like okay this definitely is worth making the connection here 100 percent 100 percent 100 (laughs) percent especially because the very next thing that happens is loki get mobius comes up to loki and says suit up and he puts on his jacket up time to address you they're going to now address you you're so right buddy and uh also the and the placenta uh, you know, is the jacket that you're born wearing you know it's the coat of colors yes yep it's the family heirloom totally all the ancestral benefits um uh i love to think about um that miss minutes you know, she very much to me, uh, I think of her as the wheel of fortune card um, because she's a machine. She's kind of the interface with the machine. Um, but also they have her hopping around like he starts trying to smack her with the newspaper and she pops around the, the cubicle a few times. There's the cube. She just jumps into the screen. And then just, yeah, jumps in at will inter- enters the screen. Well, one thing, again, we have the Pixar studio lamp lamps are in front of him and behind him. They're also in all the other cubicles, all the almost many of the lamps of the room are the Pixar style lamps. And I'm just seeing something really fascinating around seeding animism. For many generations, I think they are seeding animism to the extent that we will start to believe that these our computers have feelings that you can actually have a computer app that you can go and lay down and it'll become your, your shrink and do psychological. Dude, they already have AI girlfriends. 
and you text them AI and they text girlfriend. you back and they act like they care about you and they send you AI generated lewd photos and everything. Yes. So, I mean, we're already there, but I just see this keeping that, that pathway broader and broader so that people will emotionally connect to inanimate objects more and more. Uh, so yeah, that's, and you're so spot on about the placenta. It's even right by his boots, by his feet. What, uh, you know, and he's, he's reading through somebody else's subscription, you know, <laughs> that's, uh, that's like in, in, uh, um, it relates to the stamp act and the impression act and, uh, yeah, in, uh, totally birth certificate. What I'm now starting to call bullshit. I fake it. <laughs> bullshit. I fake it. <laughs> yeah. Cause when you are brought into the world, the first thing is they clip your sacred timeline, disconnect you from your placenta guardian spirit, holy guardian angel, what have you, and then stamp the soul of your foot. So the fact that she's yeah, right there yeah. by his, it's her, it's his soul, you know, it's the anima or yeah. the animus, depending on your gender. Very you know, uh, big uh, stuff here. Our buddy, uh, polymathing Lou, he's got a great weave having to do with like, um, putting the placenta in the family woods where uh, all the other family members where their placenta was or with these same trees and then all, all kinds of potentials of what that forest becomes for your family. You know, uh, I don't want to steal his thunder. He's got some really cool ideas about that. Pretty, uh, pretty profound. Well, whatever uh, you do, I've heard somebody practically, else, practically anything could be better than uh, cutting it off and what, treating yeah. it as medical waste or sending it off to some pharmaceutical company to make into drugs or whatever might happen in the hospital. Maybe, maybe she's, Maybe she's born with it, or maybe they were born with it, or maybe somebody else, but somebody's born with Maybelline. <laughs> so he gets the jacket on. He's now joined the order of the TVA. So he's one of the friars or the monks, metaphorically speaking. And uh, Mobius is like, good. Yeah, smart. Like you look smart. <laughs> and being being told that he's smart is basically the key to manipulating his gamma male tendencies because that's what somebody that's like Loki uh they're completely motivated by wanting to feel special, smarter and and in any way that they can feel like they're better than those all the people especially other males that they secretly feel inferior to. And they, they they called the the gamma male the secret king, right? Because in the back, like secretly, they're they're plotting to find a way to overthrow whatever community they're a part of or have infiltrated. That they feel like they're they would actually be better to be the king, or that they were born to be, or there's it's their birthright or whatever, right? And that's a big theme of this episode is Loki is very predictably scheming to overthrow the space Pope triple God lizard Trinity timekeepers of the TVA to rule the TVA. So even though he's kind of, he's kind of had a redemptive experience in the previous episode, he's less, he's definitely less malicious, evil, spiteful, just wanting like, he doesn't seem like he just wants to hurt people anymore. So that's a big improvement, but he's still got to get over the whole secret king 
mentality. But that's one of the reasons I like this show is that you see the the gamma being redeemed and becoming a nice, healthy Bravo or or Delta, meaning uh, somebody that can play a support role, can support the rest of their community, uh, you know, seed power to those who are better fit for a job or a role, not get all bent out of shape over feeling inferior. <laughs> so I like to see that. I think that that's one of the, the best parts about this show is the seeing the psychological journey of somebody leaving behind the gamma behavior and being who they really were all along and getting rid of this fantasy of, you know, the secret King big deal. It's a really big deal, but that's also, I think a big part of what leads people to the, uh, the monkish life is because it's a way to feel superior. Like, you know, I'm more, if I can't be stronger, if I can't be smarter, I can at least be more religious. <laughs> I can, right? Like something along those lines. And uh, also he saw his own death uh, in the last episode. So that's kind of a part of his uh, redemption arc as well. Yeah. And some of the the death of his mom that was his fault. That was huge, actually, because a lot of gammas are motivated by they're wanting approval from their mom because they had a bad relationship with their dad. That's a common trope. So now he's hanging, he's with the TVA. He's got his jacket on. He's with the uh, B-15 and Mobius and some other TVA agents. And he's, you know, he's joined the the order and they're, they're talking about this other variant and B-15 says, we've grabbed enough temporal aura to know it's our Loki variant that they're looking for. So I just wanted everyone to recall that temporal aura is a signature that they're talking about in the show that's like a fingerprint. It's like your time fingerprint. And your aura, as in your energy field, your bio field, is your temporal record because it contains all your experiences. It contains your memories and feelings and beliefs in a chronological in chronological rings. So temporal aura, interesting phrase they use in this show. <laughs> and they're talking about, they're talking about all the different kinds of Lokis showing a bunch of different Lokis and what kind of Loki is this variant? And he, Loki says, they're the lesser kind to be sure to be clear because he's terrified of his inferiority. Now this is interesting. He turns around. This episode is called the variant. And he's showing his, they remind him of his place, basically. Like, hey, don't get too clever or whatever, because you're, you're still just a variant, which means we could just kill you at any time. So there's a lot of things to talk about with this phonetic. First of all, variant, you know, etymologically, the simplest definition for that would be tending to change. Tending to change, which is a perfect reference to the mercurial archetype, right? Which is what Loki is. Uh, Very, V-A-R-I, is an anagram for Riva. <laughs> and to get into the gematria of it, river, which is a very fascinating word, 55555 in subtenary gematria. All the letters of river are fives. That equals 25. Variant equals 25. Sylvie, which is the name of the variant that they're after. They just don't know it yet. 
equals 25 and birth equals 25. Very, V-A-R-I, is also a word for the plasma of the blood, the watery substance of the blood. <laughs> and if you pronounce yeah. var, V-A-R, if you pronounce it with the V like a W, it is where, as in werewolf, which means that werewolf, which is encoding river and flow, werewolf. And the, the wolves come up, so I'm not just pulling wolf out of my ass, <laughs> werewolf out of my ass. The uh, the root were, W-E-R, in context to what is erroneously labeled Proto-Indo-European, were, or ver, means water, rain, and flow. And the reference given to this, the reference given to this root is uh, the Latin river Avara, which is very close to avarice the city of egypt that the the israelites theoretically the hebrews are famously from it's where you get the word avarice as in greed if you do the if you do the b to v switch your avari or avara becomes your obri as in obri or ibiri these are Oh, uh, wow. these are philological or like transliteration, alternate transliterations of the word that becomes what we say as Hebrew in the Hebrew alphabet. It's, <laughs> uh, I'm just reading the chat is so distracting. Anyway, <laughs> this word were or ver is got, it's chock full of stuff. And just think of all the savior gods related to rivers, Osiris and the Nile, Bacchus, Bacchus meaning stream. It goes on. Lots of goddess, gods and goddesses named for rivers or, or vice versa. Um, the fox also plays into this. The fox is kind of a trickster, trickster archetype, especially in Asia. And that vol root, vol, a fox is basically ver with the R switched to an L. And also we're thinking right. about the vernal equinox, Easter, where the seasons change. That's because the ver is about change and flow. Um, yeah, all of that is in the mix. So on the, on the wolf, uh, you know, Loki is the outcast. Um, there's an old common law phrase called, uh, kaput garret lupinum. And it is, it means let him wear the wolf's head. And it's basically like an all points bulletin telling the population, not only to kill this, this, uh, person of interest, not only are you required to kill them, but if you can trap them in your own house, you're required to burn your own house down in order to kill them. And so what I, is fascinating about that phrase is that it uh, it's compulsory. It is commanding the population to a kill order. It's basically order, uh, execute order 66, but for your population to all points bullet in all point your bullets into this guy <laughs> and even burn your own house down. So um, that last part of the phrase, let him wear the wolf's head is so fascinating because Adolf means the head wolf, which is the wolf's head. And so, uh, yeah, these guys, I think uh, that mantle, I think it is actually 
uh, signifying for those in the know uh, a necessary evil. I think that the wolf is indicating a necessary a, a, a philosophically necessary evil in the world. I think that's what that's supposed to be a call sign for. Dylan has a really good weave too yeah. of uh, Lycos or Lucos is wolf. That's awesome because <laughs> yeah. that's very close to Loki. Lycos. Le- oh, great. Loki. It's right there. Hot fire. It's, that is hot fire. And you, uh, you know, I, I got that that that's one of Dionysus's, like Dionysus supposedly like went to India and conquered there, Bacchus. And uh, I think one of his like generals or underlings was a Lycos or Lucos, something like that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, something that I'm, uh, I did a weave with uh, Thomas, Paranoid American, on the werewolf. Uh, it's coming out in the next month or so, but that the phrase laconic is to be able to say something as monosyllabically as possible, to say a great deal of information in as few syllables as possible. But uh, I've come to believe that the um, the uh, symbol on the Spartan shield... Oh, yeah, because that that's the... Laconia is Sparta, and the Spartans Sparta. Would, be very, would be very, like... You know, aggressively short with their words, probably. Laconic. Exactly. So I think that that symbol on the shield is a wolf's ear. I think that that is signifying those who can hear the dog whistle language uh, in as as abbreviated short form cipher is, is imaginable. Good stuff, man. So... <laughs> talking about Loki and they say that he's a cosmic mistake or that's what B15 says. That's very, this is like a proof of the cognitive dissonance of the Tav, the TVA, the people with the cross on their forehead or the X on their forehead. And I brought this up last episode, but in esoteric Judaism or Kabbalism, there's this idea of Tikkun Olam, which is to heal the world. This is the root of all of the corrupted or fallen Gnosticism branches, which is that God has made a mistake. God messed up, got himself trapped in his own creation, lost himself. And we have to fix God. We have to fix the world, heal the world. So here they are as the governing body of the world, believing that their, their grand architects of the universe, the timekeepers are perfect and have, Everything under control exactly, yet also they're believing that here they are in front of a mistake, a cosmic mistake. So you, you know, you really can't, you really can't hold both of those ideas in your head at the same time. That the world is broken, uh, and God has made mistakes, and that you know your God is in charge and in control. So like, pick a lane. That's a thing. <laughs> Then they are going through all these different Lokis and their powers, and Loki has to. He cannot hold himself back. He has to correct him, uh, Mobius about the list of powers that Lokis have. <laughs> because 
you know, that's a classic, that's a classic gamma thing. If they see the person they feel inferior to make any kind of slight mistake, they will explode on it. You know, maybe not like Loki here was not uh, mean or like bad toned about it, but there's actually this funny thing that Owen Benjamin does where when he's posting somewhere like on Twitter, uh, <laughs> he will intentionally misspell stuff in his post and he calls it the gamma mule strategy. So when he does that, all of the gammas that see it will have to comment and be like, you use the wrong form of there. And so all of the track, basically all of the people that jump on him to correct him aggressively end up causing the post to snowball and reach a lot more people than it would have. So that's why the gamma's become his mule and he reaches a lot more people by doing that intentionally, which is super funny. <laughs> Very nice. Well played. Well played. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can, what, if you know their traits, you can use their own behavior to your advantage. You know, and not get stabbed in the back. It's great. Um, and then Loki finds out that, uh, well, he finds out that Mobius is not at all concerned w with him having his magic or him doing any betrayals. And that there's an audience with the timekeepers on the table. That's what false hope that Loki's being given by Mobius to get him to cooperate. Because, again, in the back of his mind, he thinks he's going to overthrow them somehow. Then they uh, they wind up here in Oshkosh, Oklahoma, and Loki's asking, why don't we just, if we can time travel, why don't we just travel back in time to before the attack happened and, you know, save our coworkers or whatever. And of course, as with any time travel movie or TV show, they got to lay out the rules of time travel for this particular fiction. And so they're told or Loki's told that once the branch has been created or like time has been tampered with, then they have to address things in, quote, real time because everything's still unstable. None of that makes sense. <laughs> there's no reason. There's no way to make sense of that. I can't think of any metaphor for real time. I am thinking about how we're about to get fall fall back, you know, on Sunday. We're <laughs> just when you get used to a certain time. Uh, now, <laughs> I, want, I wanted to see what you made of this. So as they're walking through this crowd of people, uh, these two individuals pass by, and the one with the red bandana obviously looks real closely at Loki. And Loki looks real, like Loki double takes and turns back to look at this person. Um. Coincidentally, or, or maybe not, Bandana is 12 in Gematria and Loki is 12 in Gematria. What, do you make anything nice. of the red bandana around the head that he's double taking at? Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, so that's the scapegoat. The scapegoat has the sins cast into the scapegoat. And then that goat is cast out for a, a five-day journey with 10 stations along the way and then thrown over a cliff at the same time that the clean goat that stayed in the temple, the corresponding one that stayed in, it gets killed at the same time. And then when the sins are washed away, the red band uh, it changes white at a certain point in the ceremony. So he is recognizing the scapegoat 
vibes on her uh, because she has the red ribbon. Oh, and later on, it's a her. Oh, okay, okay. I well, just say that on, because I like, looked up like what is a red bandana symbolic of, and I figured I was going to see stuff about the bloods and whatever. But apparently, uh-huh. apparently, oh yeah, and there were red sashes um, that the TVA wears. That sticks out. Dylan just right. pointed that out. Red sashes identify assassins, the hidden ones in Assassin's Creed. Interesting. No. I, <laughs> speaking of hidden ones, I found that uh, when I looked up red bandana symbolism, that in San Francisco, it's code for gay. So if you have a red bandana, that means you're ready for, you're open for business. Oh, ready. I get it. Ready. Yeah. <laughs> and Lo- we Loki goes both ways. We already heard from the last episode that he's gender fluid. So I think that that's a dude dressed like a, a woman. And I think the scapegoat weave is real. I think the gays are being set up to be the scapegoat for the atrocities of the trans kids thing. You know, I think all of that is worth yeah. considering. Yeah. And uh, later, later on, he ends up uh, setting a bunch of goats free. Right. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's this episode, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Cause yeah, Hermes, <laughs> Hermes and the goats are, they are symbolic with each other. The goat is yeah. his, his yeah. animal. Cause he's, he's also pan. Right. Sometimes and, um, he's even got goat legs and horns. Uh, yeah, maybe not Loki, but uh, his version as Hermes. So this is the pony with the yeah, fleur de lis is- that shows up a second time. Just thought I'd point that out. Okay. And this is also where we yeah, find out that totally- was that. This is totally what Wisconsin. Wisconsin totally looks like this. By the way, there are still places in Wisconsin that look like this. Nice. I've never even really been to Wisconsin. So we also find out that the TVA is genocidally destroying entire branch universes whenever a uh, event happens, right? That's that's good to know. Now, here we go. C20 again. (laughs) We're in the tabernacle. Um, Maybe the C20 has something to do with Jehovah. Since we're in the tabernacle again, and Jehovah equals 29, as does spelling out C20 with letters. Don't know. Possible. It's possible. Could be okay. quinketing, but the tabernacle is definitely there. Uh, it, it makes me think of uh, CT, which uh, CT is um, because 20 is T in. Uh, in ordinal gematria, but, uh, but those are also is a city, you know, CT is almost the word city. It's also um, the cut. CT is cut. Over. Yeah. And we have the phallic stick here and then yeah. the head and the head is cut off from the stick. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. There's all the signs of the birthing, the obstetric practices have been flashed. <laughs> so they're in the tabernacle and Loki starts doing all this theatrics about um stalling for time and like talking about how much he knows about what the other Loki's going to do and trying to scare them that they're about to get 
murdered by the other Loki. He says, where there are wolf's ears, wolf's teeth are near. And it's kind of made me think about how Fauci was erroneously said to mean jaws of the wolf back during lockdown. But that's not really what it means. Allegedly, the surname relates to the making of sickles. So to me, that's even more accurate symbolism. Fauci, you're killing us. That that whole, you know, all the protest signs with that. The angel of death, grim reaper, time, connection to the sickle, Kronos. <laughs> so this saying, though, about where there are wolf's ears, wolf's teeth are near. First of all, we're back to the idea of teeth, right? The shin. and. The saying, according to Loki, means to be aware of your surroundings. So I couldn't help but make the a werewolf. <laughs> Everyone's seen that meme, totally. that meme, a werewolf. Uh, I think I have. <laughs> I think I you have to flash it again. But you know that's that's another thing that um is in that complete Garrett Lupinum. I forgot to mention that is let him wear wolf head so it's even in the order it has that where and wolf uh it's in yeah and i just wanted to throw that in the mix too uh somehow in the translation uh that where aspect is uh i don't know it's like uh it's whispered it still gets whispered even uh from german into english This is the meme I'm talking about. You have a werewolf, a werewolf that you're wearing, a werewolf that's being sold, and in a werewolf that is third eye is open and knows Epstein didn't kill himself. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I must have seen that a thousand times before. So Loki's saying, my teeth were sharp, but my ears were even sharper in this scene, you know, talking himself up how smart he is. And remember, teeth and sharp are both meanings of the letter shin, the S-H or the T sound. Dylan says, the secrets of the Hermetic Brotherhood, the angel of death is the angel of life, the sun. Yes, <laughs> inside you are two wolves. <laughs> Uh, that just makes me think of, again, Owen recently talking, I don't know, maybe a couple of weeks ago, I feel like he was doing a joke about inside you are two wolves. One of them is a grabbler and wants you <laughs> to send money and troops <laughs> to uh, another war. All you have to do is not feed that wolf. <laughs> so Loki so, is, you know, uh, I got, I got a thought on the, my, my ears were even sharper. I wonder if that's an indication of uh, the difference between a, a wolf's ears and a fox's ears. I wonder if he's like kind of indicating because he is a different breed. You know, he's like the adopted son. So he's like kind of saying uh, maybe he has the genetics to be even more cunning with his listening skills. And Kyle says in Baca del Lupo in Mouth of the Wolf is how to say good luck or like break a leg in Italian. That's a good one. Whoa, that's a damn good one, Kyle. I didn't know Baco, Baca was mouth in Italian. It makes you think of Bacchus and mouth. 
Totally. Oh, wow. That is fascinating. There's a lot to that. I'm going to be chewing on that for quite a while. Thank you, buddy. Totally. In Mouth of Wolf. Oshkosh, Wisconsin is the southernmost city on the Fox River. That's a good one, too, man. Damn. Look at that. Yeah, and a good call, Jen. When we're talking about this wolf stuff, Romulus and Remus is worth considering as well because that's, you know, twins are, this episode is about the twins getting closer together until they finally meet. They're both wolves, right? <laughs> uh, he's talking about how they underestimating, they're, the TVA is underestimating me. Just as you underestimate this lesser Loki. <laughs> well, if you underestimate Loki... Then add one more. Loki goes from 12 to 13. <laughs> and since he's got a God complex, that makes sense. Cause Loki equals 12 and God equals 13. I just thought that was funny. I don't know if that was really intended, but it's there. And now we see the date that they're actually at. Specifically, the date is April 12th, which is interesting. Cause again, Loki equals 12. April 12th is the 102nd day of the year. And if you remove the zero from that, it's a 12. And also around, you know, within, within a 10 year radius of this point, there are two famous plane crashes on April 12th, one in 1980 and one in 1990 back to the, the plane crashes weave. Loki's talking about how he's found his new purpose. <laughs> That's his new religion. The last episode was all about that glorious purpose. He's a servant of the sacred timeline. Wink, wink. You know, servant, though, is a phonetic anagram of variance. I thought that was interesting. Nice catch. <laughs> Mobius is on to him, though. He's wise to his tricks. Basically, the trickster powers don't work with people against people who know the future. So that really makes you wonder about, you know, Miss Minutes, the AI, the Time Cops, the Minority Report, allegedly, you know, Google creating learning computers to use AI to predict future events. The terrible tan jacket. Dylan, it's a good question. There's a very, uh, I think, intentional Wes Anderson type of vibe with the whole TVA thing. Like one of the movies Owen Wilson is famous for is the Royal Tenenbaums. And the Royal Tenenbaums is like a very campy feeling movie, I think. I've never actually seen it. But I believe the reason why I have Owen Wilson in here is so that like the campy feel is that you understand that it's supposed to feel a little like quirky campy and, and just go with it, you know? And honestly, he kind of makes that work. I, uh, I approve of that. <laughs> I think that it, the show pretty much works in that sense. It's entertaining. You know, it's very, it's not believable yeah. in any way. Right. But you just go with it. Like it has a, uh, I don't know. Chris Knowles really hates this show. He thinks it's terrible. <laughs> if you were trying to like make, if it was you're trying to believe it, then of course it's terrible. But I think it's fun. 
Yeah. You know, uh, one thing about uh, Owen Wilson is he has authenticity, like the highest of high grade, genuine authenticity value. And I think that's a, a, a almost a required contrast having him next to Loki, the ultimate of deceivers and tricksters, you know? Um, but one thing I have seen uh, seeded in very interesting ways throughout the series is those, um, those inaccuracies of the, of the, of the camera. For example, when uh, Loki was uh, being in intake in the last episode, they ripped his clothes off and then he drops through a trap door. Well, when he lands in the room below, he's fully clothed. And so he goes from being butt naked into landing with clothes on. Into his jumpsuit, his prisoner jumpsuit. He's got his jumpsuit. Yeah. So there are strange little inaccuracies that I think they see. Well, I think it's like that he fell into the clothes or something. uh, Throughout, And it becomes more and more frequent as things become more and more. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like it's cartoonish, right? It's like it's it's adhering to cartoon laws. But that's kind of that is. The becoming the theme, I realize over the over the long arc, it's almost like um, there's a different D, uh, dungeon master uh, is uh, playing with different levels of how reality works. And we find out that the time lord is at the end of time and he's the ultimate dungeon master who uh, set all of these standards of how things are supposed to work. So they do. They get all into the nitty details of different types of magic and what the uh, technical terminology of the nuance. So, yeah. And you brought up the whole animism being seated, the identification or personification, anthropomorphizing of inanimate objects. That is metaphor for the straw man that people identify with their straw man, which is a cartoon, which is their given name, their birth certificate person, their social security number. And it, and the straw man adheres to cartoon laws. And what I, <laughs> I mean that, like, I, I mean that so, so 100% literally, because what is a cartoon? It, it's, you know, if I had a piece of, if I had a notepad, right. Or I had a, a, a book and you draw still images in the corner and you flip through it, those still pictures flipped through in at speed give the illusion of being animated. Remember, this is show all about illusions, right? <laughs> and what gives the straw man your I your legal person life is two things. It's the it's the the numerical value or the way like the what in a sense, and the win. So think about it in terms of like all the digital footprint that you leave behind in the system, that your person leaves behind in this matrix, this computerized world, this digital world. None of it would have any meaning without the timestamp. And just like a cartoon has to have the frames in order, in time order, your bank account or your bills, your records, all that would have would mean nothing if you didn't have the time attached to it. You know, it's like if somebody was if you're going to pay somebody money, you were in debt to somebody. If there wasn't a deadline, a time, 
then the debt would be meaningless. If it was just, I'll pay you back someday, <laughs> the debt is pointless with that time. So literally the straw man, the artificial person is a cartoon because it adheres to the cartoon rules. It's the what and the time what's happening and the timestamp it's happening in order. And that's how this whole system tracks everything that's going on. You know, it's, it's absolutely necessary. So in, of course, the, the gov the grand poobah governing body of the universe is the time variance authority. Because if you get out of sync with, if your timestamp is out of sync with the rest of the system, then you become a agent of chaos to that system. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you, they can't control you properly. They don't know where your debts are. They don't know what you owe to who all of that. So. <laughs> yep. Uh, so, uh, uh i don't i think uh they had the the armored the suits of armor were outside of the tent now they're in the tents uh you know the tent is the covenant this is the place for the meeting of the minds the place where the agreement happens uh and so yeah uh it's all very um um old testament law <laughs> centric uh, this whole episode has a lot of uh, cancer and chariot card symbolism. That's another element of the chariot card is the it has to have the covering. It has to have the covenant on top, some sort of uh, cyborium. The cyborium is like a, mm -hmm. um, it could just be an umbrella, but it's also a cup. Well, the for, for the, I believe the cyborium or the cyborium, like when it's in a cathedral or a church, that covered yeah. area can also be referred yeah. to as a tabernacle within the building. That's right. That's totally right. And that's kind of the strange thing about it. I mean, it, it almost requires superstition because it's inside of the inside. You know, it compels some sort of specialness because it is an interior, interior, very meta. <laughs> There's lots of reference to like playing games as well in this episode. And games is 20. In the gematria. Nice, nice. Okay, I had to sneeze. And, you know, that's another thing. I think that the these cyboriums also are encoding um, the um, inception. I think that oftentimes ideas are actually being layered into themselves, so that later on will be put in the same setting or the same room. And the idea will unpack in a, a fascinating with a, with a just interesting potentials. We'll just say that. This is a really great comment from Wild Food Yumpster Flowers. <laughs> it's a good. That's a good nom de plume. Uh, nom de jour. The noses are spotlit here, and it's referring to lying. So there's a very Pinocchio esque thing. It's they're saying or uh, Mobius is saying he's lying, just playing games. Well, the funny thing about that is that Loki equals 12 and lie equals 12 games equals 20 nose equals 20. <laughs> so and and this episode has a lot to do with apocalypses. So that 2012, 2012, we're seeing those two numbers come up constantly. I don't know. Maybe it's there. Just worth pointing out when I see 20s and, I like and 12s. So the next scene, we're in Rinslayer's office. 
So we, we talked about Ren Slayer last time. I'll review a little bit about her, but I just think it's fun that, you know, the first shot we get is the reptilian overlord, the timekeeper zooms out and you see all three of them. And Mobius is pointing out all the different uh, artifacts from the timelines that have been pruned and destroyed that Ren Slayer has got. Her first name is Ravona or Ravana. Rav is there backwards. So she's a <laughs> it's foreshadowing that she may be a variant herself. <laughs> the snow globe reference makes me think of the flat earth closed container and the idea of archons outside of it controlling it. And, you know, you've got to think about that. Mobius is like, where did you get that one? The snow globe is being pointed out. Also, he mentions wanting, <laughs> wanting the roller skate that she's got. I think we all know about roller blading, roller skating as a cultural <laughs> reference. It's very popular with the uh, <laughs> uh, roller derby was invented by a Jewish guy. I'll just say that. So, so it, the snow globe uh, is, is uh, for me, I, it is uh, indicates that a uh, missing fourth pillar of the quadrivium is uh, astronomy. Uh, the, the muse, Urania, is depicted holding the orb. And when you see that, to me, I'm seeing a reminder that astronomy is a, is a lost art. Uh, that's what comes to mind for me. Yeah, the artificial world is overriding the natural world. We could say a lot about that. Oh, and you know, before you change the picture, this capture right here, is has a lot of uh, chariot card vibes for me, specifically the Thoth deck chariot card. But even how the curtains have little ripples, you know, they kind of ripple outward. The uh, the 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 cushions of the sofa are kind of red and round. These are all elements of the chariot card, uh, very powerfully uh, from the Thoth deck in particular. So. Uh, that's totally a vibe I was picking up on uh, with this image in particular. And uh, sure enough, they're drinking some nice beverages. Well, the number seven position in the Enneagram is an epicure. And so there's something about like uh, the finer things in life uh, being harmonic to the number seven personality type. I just wanted to put that on the map. I can't wait for the I have the weave on the seven personality type of the Enneagram. It's going to. Gonna, it's gonna blow your wig, blow your calf back, as uh, yeah. Homer Roman would say. Oh yeah. <laughs> so Ben, we'll get to that. Definitely though, the seven is the the seventh card is the chariot. If people miss that reference, then we have we see the close up of Mobius putting his beverage down, and there's a ring. There's a ring on the table. Apparently that's his fault. He's been leaving the rings, but you know, that makes us think of the rings of Saturn because these are the authorities of the time variance authority. Mobius is pretty high up the chain. Ravana is the top of the chain. She's the full on leader. <laughs> and she says, you know, he's trying to make a case for Loki, not being immediately deleted. Essentially. She says that he's an evil lying scourge. Right. And 
the response Mobius gives back is like, well, maybe he wants to mix it up. Sometimes you get tired of playing the same part. And that is foreshadowing. If you remember him dreaming of jet skis, his opinions and feelings are changing. He's actually talking about himself here. He's getting tired of playing the same part. <laughs> and she's like, cool. well, you, no one, nobody can change it up or play a different part unless the timekeepers decree it. I thought it's worth bringing up Excellent. that there, <laughs> there are, there are famous neuroscientists out there like Robert Sapolsky that will tell you that you are a product of your conditioning, your biology, your society, et cetera, et cetera, that you're 100% predetermined in every way. And there is no, like, this is his book, a science of life without free will. It is a bestseller. He, it, you know, he's one of these individuals. So the thing about the, the liability shield of being Jewish is that the ones that cause a lot of mischief and havoc in the world or, or wage the worldview warfare or actual warfare or society corruption warfare, they're not actually religious and there's not, it's not actually a race either. So there's really no grounds to use that as like a, how dare you say anything negative about me because I'm AJ. <laughs> this guy, one of his defining moments self-proclaimed is leaving behind any and all religious beliefs at the age of 13. And <laughs> Priscilla says, he thinks you came from monkey man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you go read the things that Sapolsky says. And like, he even describes himself as, you know, at this time in my life, I was acting like an adolescent primate and blah, 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 blah. Oh, oh my so, God. It's just, it's the, how could you, the cognitive dissonance of that <laughs> worldview, you know, you're choosing to believe that everything's predetermined, but, but someone else could choose to believe that it's not predetermined. So free will is right. The paradox is right there. <laughs> An insult, a, compliment, amazing. race, and religion in one word. That's the J word. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so so this guy, word. this guy is really something special. Like to be completely straight faced, completely uh, kind, open hearted, warm, generous personality, and be saying the most horrific worldview I've ever heard in my life. I can't believe my ears, but I'm looking at this, this very gentle, tender-hearted individual. He is Radagast. He is Radagast from Lord of the Rings. He does kind of look like him. And, and what's blowing my mind, Chance... I'm I'm not even I'm just going to throw it I don't care what's reality and what is fiction anymore. I don't care if this is a simulation because this mother right here is imprinted with Radagast so deeply that his spiritual uh message is almost like exactly what Radagast would tell the world if he was a real person here on on in in this reality. That's weird because he, he did go like his his uh, he's a biological anthropologist, right? Like he went and studied this. He studied like baboon societies, and that's how he decided humans Radagast. were monkeys. He's Radagast. He went and lived with the monkeys. This guy, <laughs> it's so fascinating. And so 
Radagast is depicted with bird shit on his head sometimes. And this is the fella who has proliferated a lot of uh, the information around toxoplasmosis and how parasitic behavior can compel the human being to subjugate their will. And so everything Mm. he puts out is a proof that we probably aren't really steering our own ship in ways that are, they're dangerous, they're profound, they're, uh, I can't look away once I get a whiff of what he's laying down, and, but everything from my core of my soul wants to rage against what this guy's putting forward. Radically aghast ideas. (laughs) Radically aghast. Well, one of his, speaking of ideas that I would like to rage against, one of his books is about the trouble with testosterone. Yeah. And other essays on the biology of the human predicament. I mean, the castration cult is a real thing. You know, the, the problem is maleness. The problem is masculinity. Get with the program, assimilate to the Borg. You know, you don't have free will. So you might as well let us think for you. It's yeah, man. Yeah. (laughs) He's making Uh, Gabe intellectually rubberneck. (laughs) Good one. (laughs) Totally. totally. It's, it's, it's a trip and a half. And then another thing that got me first, I was like, look how much he looks like Zeus. Uh, very, very much like the specifically the bust that I used to have on my channel. Um, but and Zeus had only one authority who he would uh, acknowledge was above him, and that was the fates. The fates superseded him, and he always adhered to what they what the fates told him. And I think that's fascinating because here this guy is raging against. Uh, yeah, he's a determinist of of a dangerous orientation. So I I kind of love hate this fella, and I think everybody should you know keep your ears to the ground because this is the kind of shit that's coming between this and false memory syndrome, and not even being able being able to believe your own memory of the past. Uh, they are going to presume to control our fate uh, in every way possible, full spectrum. It's so profound. So yeah, I, I feel think like this guy's he's basically dangerous. the he's the new. Christopher Hitchens. Maybe that's a good way to say it. He's the kind well, of, a, it, but with a different flair. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe yeah. it's basically the same thing. And why I say that is because Hitchens, Christopher, Christopher Hitchens was the big, like, you know, religion is not just wrong. It's basically the source of all problems in human, human existence. And it's, it's very tricky because you can make an argument for religion being a problem. That's fine. But when you throw the whole baby out with the bathwater and decide that you're just a a monkey robot (laughs) that was, you know, uh, an airplane built by a tornado going through a junkyard and chaos manifesting miracles. And that's it's silly. You know, it's silly. But there. (laughs) I'm I'm glad you brought him on the scene because that is that's a a hot item. It's a hot button item. Yeah. We'll leave it at that, but it's, <laughs> it's he's worth it. He's holding a monkey skull. Skulls signify wisdom. We'll move on. So this scene where Mobius is sticking up for Lo- his, his Loki, not wanting him to get killed. Uh, he has to sign off on the paperwork because the, the operation that they did went bad. It went South and 
you know, it was a failure. They almost redlined the timeline or whatever. So she needs him to sign the paperwork. She gets him to sign his Rin. That's the Egyptian word for the name, which was considered to be one of your spiritual bodies. And it had its own life and consciousness to it, to it like a spirit. And her name is Rin Slayer. She's a judge. We've already talked about this in the previous episode, but I just want to remember everyone to remember she's the judge. She's the magistrate. She's the lowercase G God of the TVA. And she slays the Rins. You know, you go before the judge, you plead before the judge, you pray before the God. And they ask, are you so-and-so? This is your social security number, yada, yada. And you identify with the art, the, the fiction. That's what the judge, that's what the legal system is all about. And your fixed, your also, name is meant to be a liability shield. Well, she's this, she destroys your liability shield in a sense. And she also right? says that the timekeepers are monitoring this case closely, which is a lie because they're really, she's the true head of the TVA. There's not really anybody. There's nobody home. The time, right. the timekeepers are uh, robots. Yeah, so, they're, uh, uh, they're an illusion. Her name, it, Figurehead. Her name is also a rinse layer, which is removing the placental layer. And this is what makes all the differ rinse as to what kind of birthing practice uh, you were brought into this world in. And this also has to do with the court and why the word court is the word cut. And so even the rinse layer is right there. Uh, pretty fascinating, pretty fascinating. They're encoding that lotus birth. And the fact that he, she signs her name R Slayer and Mobius <laughs> points it out, R Slayer. So we're now, I guess us to think about the, uh, the letter R, right? The row or the Phoenician Rosh looks like our letter P. So if we're just looking at the R, then let's do our little philology flop, uh, flip flop around and make it a P. So Ren Slayer is Pin Slayer. (laughs) And there is a lot of castration symbolism lurking below the surface, of course. But we get honed in on this pin that she hands him to sign the paperwork, to sign his name, his Ren. And... He's, you know, he makes a comment about how I don't remember this. I didn't give you this special pen. So it must have been from one of your other analysts. So let's look at the pen. What does this pen say? It is Franklin D. Roosevelt High School. And there is a wolf on it. So this is not like, this is not throwaway symbolism. This is very intentional subtext. So, wow, buddy. So what happens when you're born and they stamp your foot and they cut the cord, they give you your legal name, the birth certificate and a social security number. Who started that? Where did, when did that start? Franklin D. Roosevelt. Boom. FDR, man. Yeah. He also wow, confiscated so your gold. He also did the gold yes. confiscation. FDR and gold actually have the same gematria value, interestingly enough. The letters FDR and G-O-L-D. Also, uh, isn't there something about U.S. citizens being classified as enemy combatants at this time, too? 
That's the one. That's the very same one. You got it, man. And isn't it? And it's uh, it's so correspondent because um, Mobius has the suspicion that somebody else is uh, get, is getting the benefits from this power source from his higher up from his superiors. You know who else? Who's this? Whose drink ring is this? Who gave you this pen? Who gave you the snow globe? He's clearly picking up that things aren't working at the higher echelons the way that he was told that they were working. Uh, and it's so fascinating that FDR is at the, at the root of it all. Uh, I heard that one of the mini Mandela effects is that the dime now has FDR's face on the dime. I think that was Zerolath who dropped that uh, Mandela effect. And, I, and Zerolath knows his, his ME. Uh, he knows it quite well. Uh, but yeah, now there's FDRs on the dime, I believe. What? <laughs> uh, that doesn't look like a dime used to look. All right. I, and, and then oh, I'm not one not, for yeah, Mandela on. effects. I know, I know, but let's also, let's, but, but but I'm looking at this dime and that's not the way I would have pictured the face on the dime in my head. But if you go back to 1930s, the, it was the Mercury with the winged cap was the dime, you know, right on the back was the fashion. And let's not, we can't miss, we can't miss the lion laying down with the wolf or the lamb now lays down with the wolf, but it used to be the lion and the lamb. Now it's the lamb Mm -hmm. and the wolf. Well, here's a wolf's head next to the FDR. So it's almost a double whammy on the Mandela effect because it's got a wolf and a FDR. Damn. I'm tripping about, I'm tri- I haven't heard of this FDR dime Mandelu, but I am kind of tripping about it. It looks a lot it like the, the head I remember, but, uh-huh. but who was it supposedly before? Maybe I'm just trip. Maybe I'm just tripping. Who was it? According I'm to the Mandelu. Say, who was the original head was, on the dime? I think it was Grant. I be, I'm not positive, but I roughly my first guess is Grant. Jerry uh, Lath is saying Eisenhower. Oh no, that's it. He's right. He's right. I I I I default to Zerolath. Big up Z. Well, yeah, and uh, another thing about the wolf is the wolf is in Libra. Um, so the adjusting of the scales and all things about number 10, Deus ex mechina, the God machine of the, of the sky and the 10 commandments, the bringing of the law, uh, moving into October, uh, the adjustment of the, of the turning of the tables. Yeah. I'm not claiming any Mandela's or anything. The dime, according to the me searching looks a lot like looks basically like I remember it, but it just slightly feels wrong. It's weird. That's a weird one. That Mandela effect surfaced in 2020 with the coin shortage. Huh. And we're in we're in some weird waters now. Okay. We better keep moving. We're yeah. making pretty good progress. Hoping to uh hoping to keep this under 4 oh. <laughs> hours. I think we can do it. So, you know, one more one more thing I want to I want to put on that while before we walk away from the Mandela and the changing of our coinage and the changing of our history and the well, I mean, it is very appropriate to to be thinking about that since you know this is the time variance authority, right? 
Well, I think a lot of this lends in, leans into my whole weave around the touchstone and these, th- these things that are commonplace, like the pin is common. Uh, when I'm done, somebody else can use it. The coinage is common. Somebody else can get the same value out of it. Um, these things that are commonplace, um, they become touchstones they, and they can be eroded in uh, revaluated. And I think that is something uh, that I'm just going to put on the, on the table that here we see the touchstone again is part of this technology of, of steering culture uh, in fascinating ways to the extent that you don't even trust your own memory. You know, I think that's, uh, that's kind of what a lot of this is because of ch- the word change is the word alter. And the word alter is the constellation I keep coming back to, the Aura Altair constellation. That's just in everything that I do nowadays. So yeah, rant done. Alter, as in with the ER, like to change, is a 20 <laughs> also. Oh man. And it's right next to the native chance. That was one of the first neologisms you blew my mind with was alter native. Well, come to find out years later, the altar is next to Indus. And so even our word alternative is hailing back to that particular location way down in uh, by Signa Octantis, the big chasm at the uh, south extreme parallels. I got one for you. Well, maybe not. No, let's just move on. <laughs> I'm going to get some in the weeds. Okay. So moving forward with the plot of the episode, um, Mobius comes out and Loki's acting all desperate to convince him that he wasn't trying to be tricksy, that he's actually helpful. And Mobius knows all of Loki's strategies and he's obviously desperate and annoyed about being inferior. So. He says that insecure need for validation, you know, the hope I need you to use that to motivate you to find the killer, essentially the, the alternate Loki, the variant. And <laughs> Loki is clearly planning to do a double cross and try to take over the TVA and Mobius calls him out on it. A, oh, big surprise, a double cross by history's most reliable liar. What a double cross is an XX. So when we're bringing up the double cross, we're seeing 20 again. That's important. XX, 20, huge theme for this episode. Aeon, revolution. A revolution is kind of like a double cross. You know, these are the minute men that are working at the TVA. Then we see them coming down the elevators. And this is a pretty crazy shot. Like this whole architecture of the TVA is intense and it's actually a lot of it is a real life building. And so it's in Atlanta. It's some um, Marriott hotel in Atlanta. I thought this might be an interesting time to look at this place called booze Ludza and a abandoned communist UFO in Bulgaria. Very bizarre. But a, a lot of this abandoned communist structure actually highly resembles the TVA interior in the shots that you see. So this is what it looks like from the outside. You have, you have these torches, right? The two, two torches, very 
Statue of Liberty, Mithras type of vibe. And it's the one and the zero as well, right? The I-O, the 10, which is also an X. Looking at the inside of it here, that just feels like the way the TVA looks like when you're looking out the windows. Totally. Wow. There's all this crazy art on it. Winged figures. Very creepy. Wow. What a trip. And here, this looks identical to when they're walking through the hallways of TVA and looking out the windows. Except it's it's identical. It's identical. So obviously there is some inspo here. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. What a great catch, dude. Wow. It's even got these bizarre mosaics and murals around the walls. Forget your past. Don't. It's supposed to say maybe don't forget your past. I don't know. Maybe it's supposed to say forget your past. I'm not sure. This article puts don't in parentheses, but. You know, that's a big theme of the TVA is that once they come to work for the communists, I mean, the government, they don't remember who they were before. They think that they were the government is God. They were created by the government. (laughs) They were created by the timekeepers in their belief system. Wow, that is so fascinating that the art on this location is correspondent to keeping time and, and commemorating mistakes even. What a trip. It's definitely, as this article points out, it's it's like a religious shrine, but it's a government communism thing. So like it's a, there is no, even though the guys like Sapolsky and, you know, him getting the emperor wears no clothes award, celebrating atheism and a spirituality and trying to urge the separation of any kind of government and religion connections. That's impossible. The government is the religion, no matter how secular and a-spiritual it may feel, like communism. The government is religion. It's a standard for God. Always has been. You know, some were more theatrical, flowery, and maybe even more positive about it. But the mm-hmm. illusion of the separation of church and state actually kind of makes it more dangerous because it's like a sneaky God. It's like a hidden God. That's such a good point, man. You nailed it. They say that uh, Hegel fused church and state together indelibly, and the only people who were able to read his writing that could untie the Gordian's knot that he bound together, they were all wiped out with the Napoleonic reset. And so anybody who was capable of reading at his level of writing is long gone, and they just keep those people who can unbind the Gordian's knot of Hegel They just keep them at a premium. And so, yeah, state and church are forever walking in stride, left foot, right foot across the earth. Yeah, this looks exactly like the murals in the TVA. Pretty wild. Dude, great catch. Great catch. I'm pretty sure Jennifer tipped me off to that article. But yeah, great catch. (laughs) She's she's uh, invaluable for doing these analysis. Very helpful. So then Mobius uh, tells Loki that, hey, 
your life depends on this work. So act like it. You better figure out what is going on with this other variant. And he goes to get a snack. So this is an important time to or important symbol of this character, Mobius. He's always going to get a snack. (laughs) He's always like frequently eating and snacking. I think it's, first of all, symbolic of his lack of satisfaction with a life, with his life. And also, as you said, Gabe, it's a sign of the seven, the enthusiast in the Enneagram with the shadow of gluttony. Also in like life path numerology, the seven is the seeker, which obviously Mobius is the seeker archetype. And Mobius in Gematria, in Septenary Gematria, equals 22. Seven equals 22. So he's definitely the seven. And later in the series, actually, he's usually the snack that he's getting most often in the total of the series is pie. (laughs) He's getting a slice of pie. Well, if you divide 22 by seven, which Mobius equals 22. You get 3.14. It's pie. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's another one Jen tipped me off to. Like, he's always eating pie. It's a pie thing. And the pie makes him feel better. And it's in a circular room that he gets it. We'll talk about it more in future episodes <laughs> when we have imagery about nice. it. That's glorious, man. You know, I was I was getting serious seven personality vibes on this episode, but not from the same angle you came at it. So yeah, I was totally getting the same thing, same sense. And uh and I, you know, I'm not going to like go and take the time and like profile everybody, but for some reason he was like hitting that number 7 in a major way. And right now, uh the epicure is another way to identify the enthusiast. That's another word for it. And I'm I'm really focusing on the epicure aspect uh because that's where the projection or the misinterpretation of their energy, the public often accuses an epicure of being gluttonous. They see them as a glutton, but it's only because they don't understand the alchemy of their inner workings. So uh, uh, right now on my project, this is a really random thing, but uh, Machiavelli called the city of Venice uh, an Epicurean uh, location. And if you were a real Epicure, if you really like the finer things in life, then you know about Venice. You know, if you know Venice, you know the good stuff. It's kind of what he's getting at. Well, sure enough, I took a map of Venice and I put it next to the tower card, to the Thoth deck tower card. And I think I see a map of the river of Venice going through the tarot card of the of this character who's eating the tower. If you come over to Slick Dissident, my most recent uh, videos kind of accentuate this this symbol. But I just think that's fascinating that v- because tower card is one six adds up to a seven. Number seven personality type on the Enneagram is the Epicure. So it's really fascinating that Venice is relating to, uh, and I believe there are seven hills in Venice. So all I things think seven about hills is the seven. Rome thing. Okay, maybe that's in Venice too. I think there's something in Venice. I think there's something in Venice that is a seven. Uh, but what do you yeah, think I about the enneagram type for Loki himself? I was thinking either a six I, or a four. I, 
Well, okay. Well, for one thing, I want to say this uh, because it's all on the same episode here. Probably a four because four is Hermes's number. Well, uh, in the Enneagram, number five is avarice. And here you were just saying earlier in this episode that avarice was the name that the Iberus relate back to with this, this sense of greed and mammon and uh, keeping to themselves. So that's a number five personality type. But I just think it's fascinating. I have another city now that is, uh, has a name that is an aspect of the Enneagram. So you just gave me that avarice city as a, a number five. And then now I have Venice is number seven. And so I'm just keeping my ears to the ground for more indications of these, you know, cultural personality types uh, being some refraction. Loki, <laughs> the word I'm, I'm pretty sure the the word avarice meaning greed is because the Hyksos of ancient Egypt, which were the Hebrews. Uh, yeah. Resided there. <laughs> avarice, greed. Let's right, let's right. let's blow let's blow forward here though, for time's sake. Right on. So, <laughs> this is me shushing you, Gabe. <laughs> I got you. She, I got you. So Loki is working uh, on the case files or something, and this librarian behind him shushes him. Shh, that's your sh- that's your uh, shin. Your letter S H shin. Then he turns around and he does a shush with his teeth bared. You know, t- shen meaning teeth as well. I think that was funny. And totally. He's, yeah, it's a way more threatening shush that he gives her, I'll say. Right. Then he, and then he know, goes to. We, okay. We, well, we're in the library also, um, which uh, I just think is interesting. Uh, I'm thinking of him as a, as a number two, as a prideful giver. Uh, at least at this point in his personality. But that's just interesting because there's a, uh, the number two has Hera, who oftentimes has the law, the Torah on her lap uh, from the high priestess card. Uh, but then the other number two, number 20, has the Shen, just like you said. So the, the shushing is I think he's a four. I think four? he's a four because... An individual with yeah, the shadow the, the, of envy? The fear of the four is that they have no identity or personal significance. Their desire is to to create, a, to become significant, essentially, for their identity to be unique and important. <laughs> and he's maybe like a four with a five wing, which is like the bohemian, which uh-huh. is very mercurial. He's very adaptable, right? He's always changing. Yes. I think he's yes. a four. And then Hermes' number is four. Okay. So that works okay. for me. You know, I like that a lot. Uh, also because the, eventually he goes to, uh, they go to Pompeii and they scare off all the, all the uh, goats. Uh, and that is right next to the Herculaneum. Um, so the number four, the death card is uh, in the shape of Hercules. Uh, so I think that uh, because he is, he's like going around. He wants to become the hero. He wants, he wants to be, the hero of the story. Oh, it makes sense. And eventually there's actually a link between Loki and, or Hermes and Hercules in the sense that 
Well, first of all, you see that. Remember that Bonnie Tyler song at the uh, the 80s rock song that plays when they're in the tabernacle? I need a hero. That song specifically yeah, references yeah. Hercules. And then you just brought up how Pompeii has, uh, is, was destroyed Her- with Herculaneum. And the Irish had a version of Hercules. And their version was Agmios. And Agmios was oh, a god damn. of eloquence. And he chained his followers were chained to his mouth by golden chains. He controlled oh, yeah, through his speech. That's right. We actually brought that up a lot in the Avengers movie decode in that version of Loki. And I talked about Agmios <laughs> as, and that's nice. actually the, that's a Phoenician or Irish Hercules. So at one point, Loki was the Hercules figure and he kind of lost his importance in that way. Maybe that's part of why he's so temperamental. <laughs> And we were we wove in how he's change their mind. He's chains change their mind yeah. with his tongue. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. Chain and change, change, good. <laughs> so here's our next bell ding, which signals this secretary to act. It's a very prominent close up. To, like she's ignoring him. She's in her train of thought, doing what she's doing. He rings the bell. He and just like you were saying, Gabe, now interrupt, stop what you're doing, follow orders, right? Bell ding. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Exactly happens. And he's asking her for he wants to know about the classics. You know, what's the what's the most classic stories? Well, it's the beginning of time, the creation of the TVA, the creation of life, the government, and the end of time. All of those he's told are classified. The, yeah, I'll, I'm just going to breeze past that. There's things you could say about the idea of classified, but not worth it right now. The case file he's allowed to look at is his case file that's got just the information about the variant that he's supposed to be helping find. You know, worth pointing out that he's L1130. That's the social security number. And you see 11 and 3, that's a 33. Case file is equals 33. X, X, you know, seeing C20, the, the letter X in septenary is a 3. So it's a 33. A lot of 33s there. Worth pointing out. Maybe. And while he's going through the case files that he's allowed to look at, he sees the citizenship escape from Asgard. Or the destruction of Asgard, Ragnarok, right? And at the end of when when that Ragnarok happens and Asgard is destroyed, some of the citizens escape on a citizen ship, including himself, actually, you know, the other version of him. And this is reminding us of the whole citizenship of the social security number, the 13th Amendment, etc., the statesman was the name of the ship that the citizens escaped on. <laughs> Just in case we, the statesman, in case we weren't recalling that worth details worth considering from what was it? Thor, Thor three Ragnarok was when that happens. And he dies from his and citizenship is a, death for him. He died like that other version of Loki dies on that ship. Right. And this is uh, DOA destruction of Asgard. 
is death on arrival. Mm. It's a DOA notice. And another thing, uh, the word sections, section, no, I think what needs a N-O-T-I is notice. The word section is the word notice. Uh, Maybe I'm missing an E. But the word vivisection, we've woven on this. The word vivisection is survive notice. Like vive is to live. And then uh, notice is what's uh, remaining. One of these days, I'm going to make a whole list of like, uh, words from common words on forms that we fill out that are very common anagrams. Uh, because I think that there is a, a consistency uh, running in the back channels of the, you know, the systems we fill out forms with. I think they're saying so many other things just under the surface. Missing those details. The devil's in the details. So Loki has figured out that the other variant is hiding in apocalypses because if everything and everyone is destined for imminent destruction, then nothing that is that anyone does to alter the the events will matter. So the other Loki is going to places where everything's about to be destroyed and (laughs) then he can fuck with stuff all he wants or be there and no one is going to the time cops aren't going to be able to tell that he altered time essentially. And also you see this can on the screen. Mobius is drinking this Josta weird energy drink soda again, which Josta is 20, which is fun. And that also kind of reminds us of our aphrodisiacs that were a big theme in the previous episode in episode one. Now Loka explains his theory to Mobius and convinces him <laughs> that he's not going to betray him if they go check out an apocalypse and test the theory because he loves to be right, which is a very Virgo or Gemini thing. The Mercury ruled signs. <laughs> they really love to be right. Also gamma males, not saying that loving to be right. Isn't just a natural human trait. It doesn't mean you're gamma, but <laughs> the, the gamma will, will fight for a point, you know, to the, to the, everyone's mutually assured destruction. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, that, that scene there, if we're there at the, at the lunch table, he starts sprinkling the salt and the pepper into his bowl. And then he gets somebody else's drink cup and pours the drink into the bowl. Um, I saw a lot of, um, uh, it was as though he were doing the chemistry experiment or doing making the metaphor. Uh, he complimented his ability to speak in metaphors earlier in the series. And mm-hmm. so now he's making this metaphor with the salt and the pepper and the salt or into the salad. Um, but he's doing it under this lamp. And the lamp looks so much like a mushroom. That's a good and point. I was thinking is, that too. Yep, and he's sprinkling these spores into the salad to make this metaphor of how the uh, this uh, culprit is hiding metaspore. behind the disasters. Metaspore. He's speaking in metaspores. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, I think we're seeing the panspermia hypothesis being nudged here. And sure enough, they're going to go to uh, uh, 
uh, oh, Vesuvius, where um, Pompeii, where the volcano of Pompeii uh, took place in the city of Pompeii with Vesuvius. Um, and I have a theory about volcanoes being uh, seeding consciousness of humanity with advancements in thought. Uh, and I would even say it would be fascinating if some of the greatest thinkers were inflicted with uh, syphilis. This is just one of many potential explanations, but that uh, great thinkers actually have afflictions in their ability to think differently than other people. It could be actually like, uh, I'm thinking of Frederick Nietzsche is one of many examples. His father had brain syphilis. He goes on to have brain syphilis. He dies from the brain syphilis. But while he's alive, we get this unthinkably brilliant mind communicating a hundred years ahead of itself to the people yet to come. And so Frederick Nietzsche, I think of him very much as a sibyl of a strange sort, speaking to people who weren't even alive in his lifetime. And we're just now able to receive the information. And if you think about it, it's, and he also uh, venerated the volcano. He actually swam at the feet of Vesuvius and other volcanoes. Uh, and so in a strange way, I think about um, him being inflicted with syphilis that would cause his brain to think so advancedly that he had to pack it down into metaphors that we wouldn't even have the flavor for until 120 years later. So yeah, long rant, but all of that came to mind just watching him put the salt and pepper on the salad. There's a lot with volcanoes going on here. And, you know, there is a, like a genius idea relating to the volcano. So maybe there's a there, there. They go to Pompeii, the most famous apocalyptic event of all time. Also, I think important for them to cover off because we, for all we know, the official line about what happened at Pompeii is not true. The timeline is not true. There's a, there's a lot of effort made to make us think that, but I'm suspicious about yes. the Pompeii event being more recent. Actually. Yeah, man. Totally. Same, same page. Uh, 79 is the 22nd prime number. And so as soon as we start seeing this number worship going on, I think what that has done is seeded the education, uh, for, for in a very old fashioned mentality for people to believe that God gives a fuck about the numbers of the year that these events would happen. Uh, so yeah, telling us that it happened on a prime number year, which happens to be number 22, uh, master builder number. Uh, I think they're, they're, they want us to believe that God gives a shit about what year we call uh, our <laughs> the year of our Lord. <laughs> And since we're thinking about volcanoes in syncretism, Vulcan merges with the son of God archetype, Hephaestus Vulcan. It all comes back to the same archetype The all the gods and goddesses revert to the Trinity, which reverts to a single hermaphroditic being. And Loki is to test out the theory. He frees a bunch of goats. It's very <laughs> comical. 
Hermes and goats are very related. Uh, So is pan pans related to goats, right? Yeah. He also, he, he he goes on a, like a Greek diatribe there. He like starts speaking in like fluent Greek. Uh, Oh, is it Latin? Yeah. But he's the God of eloquence. So he should be able to speak Latin. Totally. Yep. And it's like a, and it makes sense that a God would come and tell people of bad omens just before the omen takes place or before the disaster falls out. It's a funny scene. And we're getting a nice, uh, Loki is kind of mutable now and it's becoming more characterized as like the mischievous scamp trickster jokester, as opposed to just like the, the evil <laughs> terrible guy guy that he was before so it's giving some likability to the character right uh, it's also interesting i noticed with um to bring back the shin to it all and we did that big weave on psychopomps mario and i and one of the psychopomps i didn't talk about is the hindu psychopomp pushan or pushin and that's basically pan with a shin Put in the middle, <laughs> push a shin right in the middle of pan after the P and you get push in. I thought that was interesting. And you have Hermes on the right with the, the lamb as the savior. You have Agni, the fire god of the Hindus on the left, riding a goat. Agni is basically the same word as the Latin word for fire, which is Igni. And Christ is called Agnes Day, the Lamb of God. Also, the Savior, you know, as a mythological archetype, the Savior definitely shows up at apocalypses, right? Or causes the apocalypse or is born right after or during because these apocalypses are about cyclical world ending, new world beginning situations. Oh yeah, and by the way, I forgot to mention that that uh, that volcano erupted on Volcanelia Festival. I forgot all about that. Uh, there's a there's a huge list of volcanoes, uh, very significant volcanoes erupting on the day of the Volcanelia holiday, which is essentially the last week of August, and it's right when the Analima is crossing over uh, that middle section. On uh, 827 is basically the crossing of the Analima. So that's like kind of like whenever you do a, a, a throat slit movement, you're actually kind of signifying the X of the Analima. Nice. Curtains. And Loki has proved his point that the their behavior doesn't alter the timeline. He's dancing around. Nothing has any consequence. This is basically the uh, the message of determinism. <laughs> Nothing has any consequence or meaning. And it's a very important philosophy to have if you're going to do what would be considered evil by people who think things do have meaning. Right. Because if it's all just. Uh, meat robots and consciousness is an illusion, then what does it matter what you do to other people or you know, other people's feelings, they might, they might not even exist. Maybe it's a simulation. Maybe you're the only one that's real. All of that stuff comes into the, comes into the 
the mix whenever you're a fully determinist, right? And there's a four. Good call, Wild Food Yumpster Flowers. That's like a letter four, number four next to him, and he's the four. I think he is yep. the four. Nice. And he's in. He's reveling. You know, I think he's so gleeful because he's reveling in this moment where his identity has some kind of consequence or significance, or he's in, he's finally important. You know, he got it right. He's valuable. I think he's a four. I think he's the individualist. I really do. Um, so they go back to the TVA and this is where Mobius is t- telling Loki about his enthusiasm for the jet ski because he's an enthusiast. And as I said at the beginning, dreaming about jet skis is a symbol of one's feelings and opinions changing. And the fact that we're getting that jet ski dream right before they start talking about the Four in his left hand, too. Hmm. Yeah, you can see four fingers. Okay, but we're getting this jet ski dream right before he starts talking about his belief in the TVA. That (laughs) I think it's proof that he's not really a true believer like he's claiming to be. He's seeking something more. He wants the bigger answers. (laughs) He says, I don't get hung up on believe or not believe. It's proving the point that he doesn't really believe in the TVA as objective, you know, and it's kind of like the whole God, godless communism idea that the government is your God, but you don't really believe in God. You know, that's the, I think that's the metaphor the TVA is holding up for us. And <laughs> look, it's like three magic lizards created you and the TVA and you believe that. And Mobius shoots back a frost giant created you. And Mobius says, if you think too hard about where any of us came from, who we truly are, it sounds kind of ridiculous. Existence is chaos. None of it makes sense. So we try to make sense of it. <laughs> this is how our origins are beyond knowing. This is actually a placenta conversation because the moment of fertilization the moment the sperm fertilizes the egg is a godly moment nobody knows when or how it's a like nature decides it's not perfectly knowable you can't track it the same way as you can know the exact time you were coming out of the womb right and also it's a reference to philosophy that all philosophy and cosmology no matter how logical no matter how rational no matter how positive or good philosophy it is they all require some kind of unprovable belief as their ground that's the nature of philosophy that's cause that's the nature of cosmology and i think that just that fact alone tells us something that our origin is transcendental because you and in a microcosm your fertilization the moment that the egg and sperm the magic spark of life happened. The consciousness entered, the soul entered life begins. That is an unknowable transcendental moment. You know, you can do the sexual act repeatedly and maybe the spark never happens or you can do it once and it accidentally happens. It's, (laughs) you know, your origin is unknowable and that applies in the macrocosm because no matter 
how good we get at geology, archaeology, astrophysics, all these things. No one's ever going to actually be able to know. History is always a story. All, all that exists is actually right now. <laughs> and especially gets more troubling when you consider the Mobius, when you consider the eternity, the eternal return. Where, where right. do you find, where's the beginning of the Mobius strip? And this is Mobius who's talking about the, you know, the ridiculous, how ridiculous it is if you try to think about where any of us came from, which is why me personally, my philosophy, my ground or my cosmology is that we've always been here. We've always existed. And I mean, like you, you right now, who you feel like you are right now in this moment, I think you always existed. I think <laughs> I, I personally really like that idea of like jumping into a different timeline where you didn't die, where you believe something different about how life works and that the movie continues, the game continues, whatever. But hey, it's all unpro- all equally unprovable. Right. Yeah, it's amazing how uh, philosophical this the the series gets. Uh, I'm uh, this in this scene in particular. I uh, I was kind of thinking very much the, along the same lines. Uh, you know, they're uh, they're kind of ta- talking about having making allowance for multiple worldviews to coexist and get along peacefully, so we can get shit done. Um. But one thing I think that uh, if anybody has not uh, learned about uh, is Hume's razor or Hume's guillotine. Is you another, do that. I'm going to run to, uh, I'll be right back. <laughs> Give me just a yeah, minute. And you, I know about this. Right so you on. just lay it out. Sweet, sweet. Yeah. Hume's guillotine is a, a very important thing to always have in mind. It's almost a, an axiom or a maxim in and of its own right. And that Hume's razor is essentially, it draws a, a indelible line forever between that which is, which is the specialty of science, is it's designed to tell us what is, to give us measurements of things uh, so that we know how they are. However, that has absolutely no functional application in what ought to be. And so this line between that which is and that which ought to be has a chasm uh, or a gulf, a trench uh, wedged between it uh, such that science is fun and is fascinating and is educational and productive and useful of a tool as it is. It can never cross over this bridge to tell us what we ought to do, what we should do. With all the knowledge that science gives us, it still can't tell us what we ought to do. Um, and so, yeah, Hume's guillotine or Hume's razor uh, is a very uh, profound philosophical uh, landmark uh, to always keep in mind. So when people come along and start talking about trust the science, the first thing you want to do is bring that conversation to Hume's table and, uh, and gouge out the territory that the conversation is not allowed to ever go across uh, because nobody's ever consummated that, uh, that divide. Man, that's such a good weave to bring to the mix. I actually could hear on Jen's computer. She's listening in the other room. So when I went through and yeah, the, the ought is divide because this is the paradox of the timekeepers that 
Loki's asking, basically saying, so we're the only ones that have free will and everybody else on the sacred timeline that they're controlling is in a determined state. And it's basically explicitly saying that the only ones that have free will are the governors or the friars, the monks, the ones that have joined joined the order, right? I mean, when I say the order, <laughs> it's stated right here that the timekeepers are like Loki wants to know, what about the end? You know, what? how does it all end then? And the timekeepers are somewhere in the future untangling the epilogue from its infinite branches. And in the in the end, once they're finished, whatever that means, <laughs> there's nothing will remain but order. There will be no chaos, which actually means there's no change. It's stasis, which is the same as death. And nothing but order, <laughs> the order. Assimilate, assimilate, assimilate. It's, it's exactly that. And the ought is paradox here is really clear because the timekeepers know all that is, but how, but does that mean that they know what ought to be just because even if you, so the same question applies to like creating the AI that can predict the future and that has all the data of all the world and surveils the, you know, the perfect panopticon surveillance and if you had all, if you knew all that was, would you know what, how things ought to be? And knowing all that there is does not mean you know how things ought to be. And that paradox is so important for philosophy because I think with, I think Hume basically explained why God gave humanity free will, metaphorically speaking, you know, um, and even even the allegory of God creating us and giving us anything is, is just an allegory. <laughs> we, you know, it's that idea when you, when you think about it, it sounds just as silly as the timekeepers untangling the epilogue of branches and controlling everything. But there is an, there is something that is the all that is, there's this pleroma, there's everything combined together, you know, all that there's the eternal, there's eternity. It's time in a sense. I'm kind of going around in circles here, but it's fascinating because if there's a, if there's an all, if there's a first mind, a first thought, a trunk of this tree of life that all of us are branches and leaves off of. And it knows all of us. It knows every hair on your head. You know, it, it's connected to everything and it is conscious of everything. Does that being that knows all know what ought to be? <laughs> and that's like, that's a huge deal. And, you know, then you have the God and the devil are the same guy. It's the trickster. It's hermaphroditic. It's mercurial. It's all of that. It's good and evil in the same space coexisting you gotta allow for both because we don't know how it should be no one knows what ought to be we just do our best yeah. with how it's really like a feeling thing man there's so much to that thank you for expanding on it's that so, that's really helpful yeah man it's really profound and i and i think it's a good tool to put in people's toolbox if they're going to go uh face what uh sapolsky is putting down you know because every decision you make you uh he says that uh, he knows when people, uh, cause he teaches, he's a, a, a professor 
he actually knows the personality type before they even come into his office. He knows that this is going to be the student who's going to walk into my office, sit in a chair, and he's going to look at me, and he's going to reach out on the desk. He's going to pick up the pen, and he's going to say, did I pick up this pen because I wanted to, or did I pick up this pen because I read your book? And he says he has that same student every year at least five or ten times in the semester. And so he has already determined that these students are going to keep coming like an echo. He he's had the same student, and it is exactly the scene where Neo is in the uh, facing the architect. And he's like, "Fuck you! I'm not going to do it." And he's saying, "Fuck you!" Fifteen <laughs> different ways, and they're like, "We already knew you were going to do that, bro." <laughs> so and yeah, it's a so it to Kyle's point, Hume Hume was an atheist and was attempting to disprove the existence of God. Hume's razor is exactly the definition of good faith. The the interesting thing is like we label stuff atheist or not, or, or God, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And when you look into the, like Buddhism and Zen and things like that, it's actually pretty much atheist. <laughs> it's, it's very interesting, you know, where one person might have a very like spiritual understanding of the, in the the mental nature of the cosmos that we're all with embedded within one pleroma, the imagination or mind of the all, and we're emergent out of that one mind in a hermetic sense. But another person would look at that and be like, but what about sky daddy? Don't you believe in sky daddy? And then, so that means you're an atheist. <laughs> and so these, ter- even these terms become very silly when we're trying to apply them to the transcendental. And that's what makes them the transcendental. That's what makes Mobius so interesting as a character that these themes are revolving around in his head. And he's the pie eater and his name encodes pie and all of that. I like what Dylan said that good and evil are more like trajectories for most people. And I do see it that way kind of. It's like creation and destruction, you know. Harmony and dissonance. <laughs> a lot of Jews are atheists too. Good point. Uh, good point, Alpha Warrior. I think we made, we talked about that a bit with Robert Sapolsky. And then Loki has one of the most wise statements in the show where he says, no one bad is ever truly bad and no one good is ever truly good. That's, I think, the nutshell, the nuance that you really need in life to get through without without heroes and villains controlling your worldview and making you feel like a victim or small or disempowered, right? No one bad is ever truly bad. No one good is ever truly good. That's the most clear definition of God. In my opinion, (laughs) that's the way to understand God in a, in a healthy sense, because you know, it it is what it is. (laughs) What is, is in it's there. You can tell. It's yeah, the yin yang symbol is perfect for that. We're in deep in now, Gabe. We better we better <laughs> press on unless you got something to add to this. I know that you might, and that's okay. Uh no, I'm digging it. I love how philosophical it is. Uh, I think that is a very important uh, uh the the very last line of this episode is another very philosophical uh, hallmark. Uh, we're we're on the path of initiation for sure. So they're going to start investigating apocalypses, and they have two clues: apocalypses and this gum kablooey. 
<laughs> the funny thing is, what happens when a volcano explodes? Kablooey. <laughs> also, also, check out the schnoz on this guy. Hello. <laughs> Is that like uh, that looks like Count Dracula, basically. I think it's the Merchant of Venice. <laughs> could be, okay. totally could be. So the next couple of lines are super important on the programming side, in terms of like you know a negative element of this show or a programming element of this show that is not palatable. So they're searching through apocalypses that fit within the time frame of when this kablooey gum existed. Loki says, it's not the climate disaster of 2048. Okay, well, climate change is as you're sold to it by the science. Despite what, despite the tactful way that uh, John McHugh said on Monday night, you know, that he had to say that he believed in it. I don't believe in it. Sorry, I don't believe in it in the way it's described. Not that humans don't have, I do think humans hurt their environment, but I think the earth is way bigger and more powerful than us and it's the nature of it is oh, to balance yeah. but we're getting told about climate disasters coming and then he says you know he's flipped into the papers and he says the that, extinction of the swallow okay go ahead gabe well the 248 that's a plutonian return that's the uh 248 years is pluto's return number and pluto ah. just returned in 2022 so that's a that's a uh, interesting number for them to uh, hail as a disaster because Pluto is like going to till up the soil and turn everything and bring revolution. So yeah, that was a very significant number that they used with two, four, eight. And then he says in 2050, the extinction of the swallow, is that a thing? So we know there's subtext in the show. Well, what is the swallow symbolic of it's Aphrodite's bird, which She's the goddess of love, but swallows specifically to the Romans signaled the end of luck. I'm sorry. They signaled luck and good fortune. So the extinction of the swallow in 2050, you're being told that it's the, that you're out of luck. <laughs> They're telling you you're out of luck. You're out of fortune. Wow. No more prosperity. That also kind of shows the link between lady luck, Tish or Tyche and Aphrodite. Yes. The fact that her bird is the the lucky bird. And then you get Krakatoa erupted in 2049 as well. I know you have thoughts about Krakatoa. Leave it to you. Yeah, man. Well, that's only one number up from 248. They only deviated by one number here with the 2049. Uh, So it actually echoed the number they had just got done saying with the 248. But um, yeah, Krakatoa erupting. Uh, Krakatoa seems to have impeccable timing. Uh, it was. Uh, it also erupted in 1883, uh, and I don't know if that was. No, I think that was in October when it erupted in '83. Uh, but that was the eruption that uh, that. Um, uh, Edmund Munch painted the scream and the scream is one of the most famous paintings in the world. Most well-known and circulated. It's that face where he slap, he's got his hands on his cheeks and he's making the, uh, the face of horror. They call it the nihilistic scream. They literally call it that. And Munch painted Frederick Nietzsche 
on the same exact bridge, just on the other side of the bridge, with the exact same sky from the scream of the event. And the sky from that event was from Krakatoa erupting and sending, they say, seven streams of smoke around the Earth. Well, seven rings of anything is, uh, that's a map of Hades. The river Styx goes around Hades seven times. And so all of the mythology of Krakatoa is immortalized forever in this painting right here, where Edwin Munch was walking along this boardwalk and he almost passed out because he had a a feeling exactly like Obi-Wan Kenobi. He had a sense that thousands of voices were crying out in agony and they were all suddenly silenced. And so that's a call response. The call is the scream and the response is the hush is the silence. And this symbol the is Shen. a call. Shh. And the response is the Aeon card. The Aeon card is the shush. Oh, hey, and, and so yesterday was Halloween, asked, and this painting looks like the scream mask. A good call, Miriam. Looks just like the scream mask. Great call. Great call. So, yeah, if uh, over on the Slick Dissident channel, this painting is the Aeon card. Card number TT, uh, Greta Tintin Eleonora Thunberg uh, is totally in, encoded here. But isn't that fascinating that this is a scream and the Aeon is a response, which is to hush, to quiet down the screamer. Mm. Good stuff. Yeah, so fascinating. Good weave. And that cr- the Krakatoa is also um, depicted on the $100 bill of... Um, Think of Java. They've they've got Krakatoa immortalized on their money for that from that exact day that the scream took place. Yeah. Loki says, God, it's just one damn thing after another when he's looking through the apocalypse records. They're really making sure that you think the next decades are going to be cataclysmic and just objectively bad. Cyclone, famine, volcanoes, flood. <laughs> So they eventually they crack it. They fit, they find the one that fits their their criteria, the clue of the gum that she left behind in the church the previous episode. And so here we are, Haven Hills, Alabama. So Haven Hills is not real, but it sounds like heaven hell, you know. And this is like, so remember the yin yang, the philosophy we've been talking about, the good with the good in the bad and the bad in the good, Haven Hill, Heaven Hell. I think that's why this place is called that, Haven Hills, Alabama. And then you see this sign get destroyed by the hurricane winds, and they're going into <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> they're going into this building called Rock's Cart, basically Walmart. <laughs> you like what i did there so awesome so in do you first of all do you see 20 you see 20 here in rocks cart totally the xx in the name the xx in the logo even the the xx in the logo to me is like alpha and omega or Aleph and Omega. That that's the Hebrew letter Aleph that I'm showing there. It's not exactly an X, but you know, there's a little twist to it in the the logo that makes you kind of feel like it could be the Aleph. I don't know, Alpha and Omega. 
this is the reason why we're getting this twin symbolism. First of all, yes, Miriam, there's a double cross in this coming scene. XX there. The Gemini twins are united in this scene where they come together. You know, he finally meets his twin. Whoa. Buddy, I'm getting uh, I got a cipher out of rocks cart here. So, okay. uh, uh, the, the soldier, the minute man who was snatched up in the tabernacle, her name is C 20. So we can pull out the C and the X X, right? When we pull out the C and the X X, because that's the name of the agent that they're trying to save is C 20. C 20. What remains is row art. Okay. Now, one thing about row art, this uh, this has to do with um, uh, Dante going into uh, through the inferno. He had to leave. He had to put a row of seven flags, seven rows, which are seven flags, seven P's on his forehead. Um. So row art is, uh, I think, encoded, and uh, it's kind of a nod to Dante. But if you take the P, which is the row, right, and then you put it with the A-R-T, you can spell the word trap. You can spell the word part, uh, and you can also spell the word party, <laughs> party, but it is going to be a trap. This this uh yeah, this, if you take out the C twenty, uh, it's a trap. It is gonna be a trap. Whenever I see row, I am always I'm like compelled to now that I know that it's the thing, it's like I, I can't resist. It's like somebody says, Don't think of an elephant. And I <laughs> oh, I already thought of an elephant. Whenever I see row, I turn it into a P and I start looking for anagrams and I find all kinds of fun things. So just thought I would share that. We're totally going into the Agent C20 trap. <laughs> the, Dylan makes a good point that cart is like chariot truncated and a cart is a type of chariot. So the good chariot call. symbolism, the seven symbolism coming in again. Good stuff. Right. And it's almost in, like there's, it's like they're, they're agreeing to go into the trap if, when they walk under this sign. It's totally what I see. <laughs> there's a lot of layers to this. We're, we're going to have to talk about this one, but first of all, Roxxon in the Marvel universe is the corporation. That's basically like Amazon, Walmart and Pfizer all, and maybe like a, some kind of weapons manufacturer all rolled into one. It's the, the big evil mega corporation of the Marvel universe. Yeah. And you know what chance is there any chance, uh, can you pull up the only thing I sent you today on our personal telly? Because sure, this is buddy. the only one I made a graphic for. You're allowed to have at least. Uh, you can have one at least. <laughs> <laughs> this one is, uh, it's so, uh, I don't know. It just calls out for many layers of interpretation. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's well, the there's a lot of reasons for it too. There's a t- this moment in the show is extremely charged. 
Like the whole episode has been building up to this moment when you're in the parking lot going towards the building. It's the music is like, boom, 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 boom. And it's like, it's designed to like cause a, a physiological reaction in you, you know, like the tension and the excitement yes. gets like, whoo, big time. And it's, and I think totally. it's, it's that it's the, the feeling that this scene going in here generates is like, the uh-huh. masculine and feminine poles coming together closer and you feel like all of a sudden there's nice. like, Whoa, there's a lot of electricity right now. And there's lightning in the air storming. It's definitely that as well. Excellent. Excellent. Yes. I love how, uh, you know, now that we're paying more attention to the musical uh, impact uh, we can, uh, yeah, we get much more uh, enrichment from the, from the experience. I'm I'm learning about how horns are an initiation, you know, it's the call to the hunt. Um, but also Cleo is the muse of history and she is depicted uh her name means glory. Oh, so that's uh, why before Loki also, is initiated into the the TVA, you see the guy with horns. With horns. Isn't that He's something that in Right. So, yeah. So now horns also imply the glory. It implies the story and implies that we're going to sing your praises after you're gone. Uh, it's, it's so fascinating. Um, so, yeah, this is uh, this is you were saying the amalgam of many corporations. Well, what I've done is I've put BlackRock, State Street and Vanguard together. All of their logos come together. And they form this shape right here, this amalgamation of the three major corporations, which is the Colossus statue. And the Colossus statue, the, the legend, is that Colossus was mounted over the, uh, over the harbor of uh, the, uh, basically the Strait of Gibraltar, and that ships had to sail between his legs. And so he's holding his his uh, toga or his whatever to one side so that you can fit your ship between his under his crotch while he's also holding a, a burner or a lamp above his head. So uh, so I basically just put the three logos together and the ship of State Street uh, goes under the legs of the statutary, the statuary uh, character, the ship of state but citizenship. Also, yeah, it's the citizenship. So yeah, I just thought I'd put that together um, because that's what came to mind when I saw Rock's, Rock's cart. It is definitely that a big amalgamation. Yeah. Right. The, yep. And also a uh, 37 degree parallel is where uh, is the center line of my territories map. Uh, but it also uh, is a very significant number, the 37, to so many things, so, so many things. So it becomes a touchstone and an altar in and of its own right. So there's a great comment here from Mike Winner. DJ Mike in the chat. What's up, dude? Alpha, Ve- Alpha Vedic, Alpha Warrior. And he says, the XX over the XX, 2020 vision of what's to come. And they're giving you a false idea of what's to come with all the climate alarmism, right? But this scene in this rocks cart superstore, a kind of future futuristic version of Walmart, is filmed was filmed at a Macy's store that was vacant in February of 2020. 
February of 2020, before lockdowns were enforced, this Macy's was already vacant because people were freaked out and they were able to use it for the shoot already available vacant. So this is, think about all the stuff that was going on when the lockdowns first kicked off. How many people were rushing to their big superstores to buy all the toilet paper to stock up on this and that? Like the mind control was so powerful that people were on, you know, on a dime ready to do whatever they had to do, whatever the news told them to do. So this is, you know, this is the, this is the lockdowns. This is also, you got to think of the uh, Hurricane Katrina situation it's the fema camps this is they specifically you know you're told that the government's not coming to save these people they're on their own there's no rescue coming all of those all of those other apocalyptic events are there for us to consider also oh yeah what a good weave oh Wild food, yumster flowers. This is the key weave. How did we miss it? XX is the female. There's no Y chromosome. And this is the nice. female Loki we're about to meet, who's the superior to the male Loki. It's the end Ooh, of the hot. male, which Ooh, is what, like, that's what communism is about. It's super hot. Very nice. Very nice. Well played. Uh, well, I, we're glad you're so, here for uh, that. That's really good. How did we miss it? It's right in front of hot. our face. Of course, XX is the female. <laughs> Uh, the, Boom! I got to point out, Decatur is a des. That's a ten, and even Decalb is a dek. So we have a ten and a ten in that phrase. North Deck Calb Mall in Decatur. So we have a ten and a ten right there as well. Deck and des. <laughs> Zerilas says women are the double cross. And that's the biblical story, isn't it? That Eve was the, the traitor in a sense, the, the cause of the downfall. Uh, Jennifer, I know you can hear me. Will you take the cat away from my door to my office, my studio? The cat is just scratching <laughs> at the door nonstop once and so bad. Take him away. Put him in jail. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, wifey. So this we're we're uh we're in here this is the new normal right we're getting told we're here we're not going back we're in the lockdown we're all huddled in our department stores the new normal <laughs> and loki's trying to get them to let him do what he needs to do to catch the variant he's like you got to trust me and mobius is like why is it the people you can't trust are always saying trust me <laughs> also we got to think about trusts in general, you know, trust with our le our legal black magic sorcery. We entrust in society. There's low trust in this type of society. The reason why these people are all going to get wiped out by this apocalypse is because they live in a low trust society. When you have a high trust society, you are able to go through a lot more cataclysmic type stuff. Probably it never even happens or you're not vulnerable to it and you're there to help each other out. So when we cut to this shot of the security cameras, where the, the variant is at, I noticed that it's camera number 31 and trust equals 31. And that was the last word spoken 
maybe interesting there. Nice. You know, I got a, I got a little side weave on the word trust. Uh, I recently learned the word tryst is in T R Y S T, which is, uh, it's like, a uh, having a quick fling. It's kind of like, a uh, yeah, a quick an fling. An affair. And it's generally, it's like low, low obligation, uh, doesn't last very long. It's kind of, you know, just a quick fleeting moment. Trist implies specifically Trist is about it being private. Yes. Right. It's it's in the private. Yes. And it almost implies that like, it could have been a tryst for them, but you thought it was a trust. So it's like, oh, they didn't take it seriously. And you thought, so there's that off balance too in a relationship. But then there's also T-R-I-S-T, which is sometimes another spelling of T-R-Y-S-T. And a T-R-I-S-T is a hunting perch, uh, much like the tree fort behind uh, uh, Oliver... I've been working all day. <laughs> the, the redhead Oliver guy, he had a tree fort behind him. Well, that is a tryst, T-R-I-S-T, uh, but it is also um, a trust, like literally the trust that the government has. So these words, they're so <laughs> philologically close that it makes you think that the government is actually having a T-R-I-S-T and a T-R-Y-S-T while you thought it was a T-R-U-S-T. So yeah, uh, there's a, a really fascinating weave all around the word trust every, that is all coming into light ever since I learned that in God we trust is an anagram for tower G in dust. You know, it's funny. Tower is, seven in dust. In, I've, I just looked it, looked it up and in Norwegian, trist means cheerless and gloomy. That's basically Oliver Anthony. <laughs> right, right. Yes. And that's um, Mel Pulmony is the muse of tragedy, uh, which is totally kind of what uh, confirmed what I was looking for when I started that. Because I money, think Trist is good to bring up, though, because the, the Trist is a agreement between uh, an agreement to meet. And it's often like a pro- private rendezvous between lovers. So you got the private and it's an agreement to meet or an appointed right. meeting or yes. meeting place. And this is where Sylvie and Loki are, you know, they have an appointment to meet and there is kind of, there's like a love tension that happens between them as well. So tr- yeah. trust yeah. and tryst is definitely in the mix. It's a good weave, dude. Yeah, buddy. And there is, there's something about money, you know, money, it draws out your private into the public. It makes, it shows your hand it shows your intentions it shows it bears your inner desires it really tells a lot about you you know it's fascinating what money serves as a kind of a window to the soul in a different way than we think of it uh, because it's uh, for all transactions prov- private and public and right there on the money it is opening the window to see into uh, your private intentions or uh, your private desires, your private fidelity uh, is drawn out through money in a, in a strange way. So, yeah. 
something about that device, you know, that archway on it makes it look like the Fornax constellation. The Fornax has a symbol that is just a, like a simple block with an archway, you know, this is where you put the wood into the, into the furnace. Uh, but there is a Fornax implication to that half circle of these devices. Which Fornax, by the way, Fornax is not the Aura Altair constellation. I'm a little perplexed by this. I haven't come to terms. I haven't sat with this until I'm uh, comfortable with the fact that they're using a Fornax constellation where I would prefer to see the Aura Altair constellation. But I'm just being, uh, I'm just splitting my own hairs. Don't split your, don't, don't blow your wig. <laughs> I, I grabbed this screenshot because she, you know, points, puts on a timer on this temp pad and lays it down. So we're left to assume that she put it for 20 minutes. You know, it's, we're not actually showing the number 20, but it's an implied 20. That we nice see. catch. Totally great catch. So the, the 20 thing is replete throughout this episode. C20. It starts that so way. Consistent. ends that way. So why don't we, so since we're sure that they want us to think about 20 and this has got a very yeah. old Testament biblical thing going on to it as well. Just look at some of the words that equal 20 in biblical gematria in the old, (laughs) in the old, uh, go ahead. Well, before we do, because this is, this is a fun experiment. I didn't know we were going to do over on slick dissident uh, very recently, you know, on the economist cover, it was Barack Obama who was in, he was rocking the symbols of for pride. He was on a little a little motorboat going down the river, and on the boat is the word pride. And he's doing a, a thumbs up to this elephant on on the shore, um, and he's about to go through an archway. So on my channel, I just uh, basically took all the ingredients of him as number two, number two, rocking the the uh, the vice of pridefulness, the the sin of pride. The infernal name of pride is Lucifer. And so he's technically dressed up with Lucifer symbols. And then I floated his boat through the Aeon card uh, and it all fits perfectly. So I just wanted to kind of uh, uh, weave what we're doing now to what I did over in Slick Dissident with uh, with <laughs> Barack Obama granite giving the thumbs up signal. He's even putting his finger up. Uh, I got big Mike in the background, uh, superimposed <laughs> onto a Sasquatch. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So I'm just going to go through some of the, some of the old Testament, <laughs> big Mike, the old Testament gematria that has 20 as a value. So first is the Hebrew letter cough and Kof is, it's got Oaf in it, like the Ophis or Ophi, which is a serpent. The, actually, Kof can mean either serpent or monkey. And I've talked about this before. I think Dylan's work is what taught this to me. The, maybe it was Higgins, actually. Like, the serpent being associated with the devil and the monkey being associated with the devil. And we... (laughs) When you talk about determinism and that whole worldview, you got to bring up the you're just a, a monkey, you know, like Sapolsky and his primatology, live anthropology, living with monkeys, all of that. And also the word var, vari, 
that we talked about at the beginning as in variant V-A-R-I is that uh, a lemur from Madagascar is called the Vari. So there's a kind of monkey situation there. Also, the wow. electrophorus Vari is the electric eel. Which is a very bizarre animal, electric eel. Yeah. You know, uh, the the Revis thing that uh that makes me think of Renslayer, um, because of her name. Um, oh man. Oh, but I wanted to say that the thing about uh, uh you know Bob's your uncle and your mo- your mom's mom's mom five billion years ago might have been a monkey. That whole spell is so fascinating. You know, I just want to point out how it it is a rhyme to anybody who claims to know who your parents were somehow get any power over over you whatsoever. And it's it's at such a level of desperation that people, you know, these determinists, they're satisfied with knowing who your mother's 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 mother mother was to the power of 10. They that sliver of a fraction of implication that they might be able to predict your decisions is enough to, that they can tell you that you're going to pick up this pin and wave it around in my face and tell me determinism is baloney. But I just wanted to point out that the 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 foot in the door that science is trying to gain is knowledge of your elders, is knowledge over who and it's it's not your parents, it's not your immediate elders. It's ancestry that's so far long ago that that's enough for them to have a claim over your free will now. You know, that's the level of a sliver of influence that they're taking uh, that fraction and trying to take it a mile. So I just wanted to kind of put that in the light that the uh, the knowing of who you are and where you came from, that is uh, sustained, it's preserved in Greek tradition. In the Greek epics, to if you really you're not just getting the attention of this person, you're actually speaking to their soul and their ancestors that came before them when you call them their name plus their parents' names as well. So sometimes you'll just be like Achilles, son of Apollo or whatever. Of I forget I forget the name. It's actually uh, uh, but you would say just the father's name as well. But then if you wanted to really grip them by their, by their soul, you would also include their mother's family lineage also. So there's like different layers of how compelling you are when you attach your words to a person. And, uh, and that is to know their ancestors. So I just wanted to put all that on the weave when the uh, determinists are like, yeah, well, I know your mother's 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 uncle was a Reese's macaque, maybe slim minor chance and now you got to listen to what i say so yeah hide your kids hide your wife (laughs) i had a tuning earlier this week and this this person what didn't seem like particularly triggered or upset or like you know they didn't even bring it up about recent world events but they he was uh his father was an exile from palestine had to go somewhere else and he was raised in a different Western country. And 
at the level of this dude's heart chakra outside of his heart chakra was the biggest, hugest, I actually thought it was like a specific ancestor at first, but as I probed into it, I was like, no, this is the collective aggression and anger of an entire paternal line going back many generations, all collected and all kept external to his field because like there was this belief of indifference. Like what's the point of being angry about it? It's not going to change anything. (laughs) So with, with permission, I like merged this Kamehameha of ancestral rage back into his energy field. And the way he described how it felt, he was like, he was saying that, and he, he, we're not even on camera, you know, he doesn't know like what I'm doing precisely. He just know, I mean, I brought it up that it's there and I, you know, I'm going to move it in. And when I, what I was aware of as the threshold of his energy field, when I crossed the threshold of his energy field with this ball of this ancestral anger, he piped up from the, on uh, from the, the call, just audio, no video. And he said that he all of a sudden felt this electricity up and down his entire body. And I was like, yeah, it's your ancestors, man. You're taking it back, (laughs) taking it in and not to just be pointlessly angry, but just to reclaim that, that power for anything that you might want to be assertive about or good, do good in the world. And the individual who I'm talking about, I can't, I, I don't feel comfortable to say who it is, but he's somebody very, uh, very heroic and, you know, out there uh, making a difference for a lot of people with his message and in terms of like self, self improvement, self uh, not, it's not like self help in the bookstore spinner rack sense, but like real authentic selfhood, you know, really knowing yourself real. um, Yeah. The heroic masculine, all of that. So anyway, what you're talking about addressing somebody by their ancestors, that's not just like, some kind of quirky cultural behavior. It's something we've totally lost track of that there's a huge reservoir of available energy that we could either be connected to and flow with or separate from. And if you don't even know their names, how are you going to ask them for help? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> it can be tough. It can be tough to do that. So, and that's what, that's part of what government does is it's got like records on all of that going back to God knows when and can apply uh, pressure on those demons, you know, on those deceased human spirits. Loki is the guide as Hermes as a, a Mercury figure. He's the guide to the deceased souls. He's a guide to the manes. It's what they're called. So it's very appropriate to bring that up into the mix and that nice. the, the timekeepers know the beginning of time. They know where you're from. They know where you came from, but you don't know. And that's neat that you don't need to know. You just need to work, focus on your job. <laughs> you just need to focus on your slavery. All of that is super important, man. Glad you brought that up. You know, uh, now, we've all had t- a chance a, uh, to look at this whole list of words, the equal 20 in the old Testament, but you did bring up the horn and like the battle cry or the battle horn. And one of the meanings is battle uh-huh. shout, which is kind of a similar meaning. There's fluid dye. There's ink. There's, Oh man, there's a lot of words that equal 20 is very interesting. Uh, brotherhood, you know, it and he's is. been initiated into this brotherhood in this, of the TVA. 
there's to thrust. There's all that in the fight scene at the beginning of the episode, a lot of thrusting of pointy objects into people to kill them. There's the idea of division, cutting the cut C to the T. Um, even that shin word. If you look at shin as the mutable S to T sound can be either S S H T T H. Then you can get the idea of cut out of shin, out of all of its mutability, the cut. And we're talking about at the end of the day, like the biggest theme of this episode is the <laughs> the uh, placenta casserole, the 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 cutting of your timeline, your sacred timeline being cut away, and reclaiming that ancestral connection that is within the energy of that placenta and the guardian spirit of that particular life form. All of that's in the mix. Oh, do you want to say something? Can I move forward? Uh, I would just wanted to, uh, I'll be so quick if I can. Oh, one of my, you know, sorry. Uh, Calamity is also one of the, the twenties and we're talking about cataclysms in this episode. Oh man. Very interesting. Uh, Calamity. There's a there's a Venus on the half shell, <laughs> the calamity. Um, uh, one of my uh, conversations that I have with myself, uh, you know, the one of those uh, those benign arguments that that just always comes back, and I hope I never get the chance to relive or rehash this conversation. But I have so much fun with the thought of it that I can't help myself. I, it's like a guilty pleasure. It was the the woman who told me to please put on my mask in the bank. I had already gone through the, I had already gone through the process. War stories, this was in man. the heat of the moment. Yeah, man. It was in the heat of the battle. Like everything was fresh. Nobody knew anything. We we're getting all the mixed signals. Everybody's masked. And I'm going to be that guy. I go through, I wait in line. I'm the only guy with no mask. I get the I cash the check. It's not even my bank. I'm just cashing the check there. And I'm walking out and she catches me on my way out. I'm almost out of the building. And she's like, excuse me, sir. Next time you come in, would you mind wearing your mask? And I was like, I'm not going to wear my mask because I'm not sick. And you can't, you know, I have this whole thing. And she says, well, we just want to be your bank. And I'm like, you're not my bank. Thanks. Bye. And I walk out, you know, and I'm pissed. I didn't do the mask thing, but I'm still pissed that I'm in a bank being told to dress up like a bank robber. You know, like, don't these people see how completely it's all fresh on my mind? Well, to this day, I hope that the, somebody will ask me to wear a mask again, because my answer is going to be, are your parents alive? Are your parents still alive? Can you call them on the phone right now? I'd be happy to wear a mask, but I got to have a conversation with your fucking parents. I got to talk to your mom and your dad. And then I'll put this mask on, but I got to talk. And then I'm going to ream their fucking parents to the wall for raising such a piece of shit child that's going to be here telling me to wear a mask. I'm going to lecture their goddamn parents. And then I'll put the mask on happily for the rest of the day. But first, I got to talk to your parents who did such a goddamn bad job of raising you. And then we can have a contract. Yeah, that's my uh, that's my internal monologue <laughs> to the lady at the bank <laughs> yeah but dude 2020 i mean remember this 20 is about division that's one of the meanings here and that was such a divisive thing would we have had that type right. of 
righteous rage and indignation against random people out in the street if they were telling us to to mask up if that wasn't if the the calamity hadn't been brought into existence something to think about i mean we know that we wouldn't actually well i've been practicing the speech so i'm ready for the next round (laughs) (laughs) i lived in the like a totally based place where nobody cared that i didn't ever wear it they had the the mandates were out there and people wore them, but I didn't have to. But this this whole scene of being in uh, the 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 super Walmart, right? That's where that's where everybody flocked when it was the apocalypse. Everyone ran to Walmart. You know that's so so strange. And here Loki uh, Loki run is with B fifteen. He's gone off to the back looking for the variant and he runs into this guy skulking around suspiciously. And he says he's shopping for plants <laughs> and I just couldn't help it. I was like, well, plants is also 20. Why not? Let's, let's point that out. Um, then the, uh, the variant takes over B 15 and says to Lo- turns to Loki and says, so you're the fool the TVA brought in to hunt me down. And Loki is a 12. The fool is a 12 or fool and Loki equal in Jamadria. He's definitely the fool of this series. Quite obviously. Nice. Uh, the, the guy is, uh, who's shopping for plants. It's a, he's shopping for Azazels or, or is oh, it Azaleas? Azaleas. But Azazel is the Azaleas. angel of death. Azazel is the yep, angel of Azazel. death. Totally. And Azazel was in the movie that Denzel Washington uh, did called The Fallen. Uh, And Azazel was specifically the demon he was dealing with who was transferred through touch in that in that film. And so we have a bit of a consistency here with Azazel and the Azalea sale. (laughs) Half Uh, off of Azalea. And uh-huh. <laughs> the whole virus contagion bullshit mythology is that like, don't touch me six feet apart. Exactly. And, and what exactly. were they telling you? Like, Hey, there's a new variant. Totally. And also, dude, it all comes together. So many things right here, because the fact that there was a hurricane sale means that they are preparing for these disasters. They're actually, they made sure that they, they ran out of toilet paper because they knew how much money they were going to make on your masks. And people don't look back. They don't see that with 2020, that it's all investor manipulation that they, they, uh, uh, hold on. I have it written down. They they literally have a maxim that's called, um, Oh, where is it? It's called, uh, Something about uh, get the uh, discount on the doubt, on the chaos of the problem, and then sell the solution at a premium. It's a it's a uh, basically a stock market maxim. Let me find it because it's worth it. I'll be right back. Yeah, definitely worth it. The plant sale, man, (laughs) they're already on. They've got a sale going for it. That's of course. And that's the last thing probably people 
like there's an irony to this as well that while the the masses are buying their toilet paper and they're stocking up on their emergency rations and stuff the the wise were buying plants the wise were investing right. in plants like she's the wise one she's the superior loki she's around the plants and that's what you go for when that's like you know think of the uh all of the people that you know that got into har- farming and homesteading around 2020 and now they're crushing in life that's a huge thing totally. to keep in mind is that like that's what the wise one is doing going for the plants big time do you find your also, little notes um, yeah so the phrase is buy confusion at discount and sell clarity at a premium and wow. i think that is a that's a very loki thing is, to say isn't it isn't it yeah and i think that's totally kind of a, a staple to uh natural disaster capitalism I think they've got these recipes all figured out a long time ago. And then another thing about the plant is uh, it's like having a plant in the crowd. So if you're, you're going up to do a speech, you actually want somebody to say something that sounds contrarian at the exact moment that you told them to. So you could look like Johnny on the spot. So you have something quippy to retort to put them in their place. Yes. Yep. So that's called the, uh, the Delphi technique is when they put seeds and plants in the crowd and eliminate the resistance and have, they come to a, a pre established conclusion. Uh, so yeah, having the plants, because as the scene blocks out, they're literally walking through the store and there's other people in the store shopping who serve as a plant or the Azazel spirit to get passed off through the crowd. It's so, so many metaphors layered in uh, within layers, within layers, within metaphors, within metaphors. It's pretty profound. <laughs> this is why we're doing this. That's why we're covering this show. And ho- hopefully it also gives people, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe it's like some training on not saying that we're experts or anything, but it's training on how to decipher symbolism in film. Or just symbolism in general, some symbolic literacy. As the great Michael Tesserion says, symbolic literacy is psychic self-defense. So this is the moment where the twins uh, meet. <laughs> they both make a, they mirror each other with their sort of nasty smile they give each other. And the next shot after the twins finally meet is a baby crying. <laughs> you meet your twin when you're born. Your placenta comes out with you when you're born and you cry. Next shot, baby crying. And there's guys in this shot with red vests. Not orange, like you would think a caution vest would be. They're red. They're they're definitely red. It's the red covering. It's the sacred timeline, yep. the sac red. Yeah. And uh, again, because of the placenta, the divine twin, the coming together of the two Lokis. And here is a scene of refugees, you know, uh, again, playing into the metaphor of or no, no, no. The philosophy, the false illusion that, that we're born into a prison planet, you know, that we're, born, we're oh, falling yeah. into suffering, that, that the birth is an emergency at all <laughs> is the oh, first yeah. lie. That's a great point. Treating birth being treated like an emergency by the medical system. And here's an, this is an yeah. emergency situation. 
Yeah, really man. good point. And that's another that's another one that uh that kind of came and went on our watch. You know, these these changes to language happened in our lifetime. And it's I think it's kind of a blessing to be able to call call things back to the way they were when we got here. And that is like an emergency is not prolonged. An emergency is immediate. It's only in the now. It does not go on for years and years such that a president can sign off and we're still in an emergency from something that is no longer emergent. We're no longer in the event. They just, uh, that's a lie. An emergency can't be uh, uh, continuous. It's Mm. only uh, momentary. It's fleeting by definition. And then the investigators here, they find C-20. And when we finally catch up to C-20, right in the midst of all this chaos, this, you know, the PSYOP, she's saying, Israel, 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 Israel. I mean, it's real. It's real. It's real. <laughs> I mean, can we... <laughs> it's, it's so on the nose. It's ridiculous. You know, we've been chasing C20 the whole time, 2020, 2020, and uh, Israel, 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 over and over and over again. And that doesn't doesn't attach to anything in the film. It doesn't attach to anything in the film. She's not talking about anything from the fictional cinematic experience. She's feeding the narrative that's going to go forward politically. Yeah, there is there is foreshadowing to a a reason why she's saying that in in the context of the show. But up to this point and and it's multi-layered, I'll just say, you know, there's it's it's saying more than one thing. (laughs) It's it's not just saying it's real. It's saying is real. That's for sure. (laughs) Oh, and she's by a paper shredder. So her mind is shredded, right? Like she's she's white. We can't uh, over over more next to the uh, even next to the cabinet. Nope. Oh, I was oh, just pointing out the, the envelopes. Logo for the company. Yeah, envelopes too. Right. Envelopes. That's the X logo. And envelopes totally. are placenta. it's a pl- envelope placenta. is a placenta metaphor, or could be. Yep. You know, maybe I get Address. a little placenta crazy at this point. So after they, <laughs> they, after we get that scene, now we go back to the twins encountering each other. She's still talking to him through a proxy. She's, uh, you know, she's relieved that she sees that he's inferior to her. There's, you know, it makes me think of how relief and belief are both. They both have that L I E F, which leaf it means love. You know, when you're relieved, you feel love again. You know, what, what you what you believe is you love what you believe in. <laughs> so when you believe in the government, you're saying you love the government, like Mobius, for example. That's why the government is a is a stand in for God or for some people is their God. <laughs> OK, and. Now Loki is sitting in front of the uh, the soap, and it's funny is soap is mercurial, you know it takes something from one place to another place. 
it's also 12 in Gematria like Loki. <laughs> That's fun. I thought it was interesting how she says, oh, bless to him. That's something my grandma used to say. And I feel like it's kind of an archaic, not super archaic, but it's not a very modern way of talking. So it's like an anachronism of a thing to say. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe people still say that. I I actually say that, but I say it because it's archaic. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) And then he asks her what she's like. I'm not Loki. Don't call me Loki. She's offended that he's calling her Loki. And he asks, well, what should I call you? And he says, Randy. (laughs) So that's another reference to the whole aphrodisiac thing. And remember, this is the the male and the female coming together. There's that spark energy. That's why there's the lightning storm in the hurricane that's in there. Um, He gets his ass kicked by the big hick guy that she mind controls and while he's on the ground after getting his ass kicked there's a robot dog that starts you know trying to comfort him (laughs) and there's actually a bunch of robots in this store i didn't grab shots of all of it but that's another thing they're trying to kind of key you into the future is that robots are going to be a thing for whatever that's worth Uh, they don't look much more complicated than a a roomba so maybe not a big deal dude and didn't she just call him a fool she just oh, called yeah, the, him fool the fool and the dog. That's why. That's why the dog. That's why the dog's there. And then totally. So then he he falls on the he ground, falls. and then this will be Canis. Uh, I think it's Canis Minor that is uh, next to the heel of the fool card. If anybody ever wants to map it out, uh, I think the fool for the Rider Weight fool, not not the Thoth fool, the Rider Weight fool. I think it's Orion upside down, and the dog nipping on his heels if i'm right if it is specifically orion inverted then the dog on his heel would be canis minor the little dog the underdog if you will and he's kind of upside down here too dylan says his experience on sets is that actors and crews are usually oblivious to the subtle symbolism but it is there i see it's there he says he spent. He says, "I've spent thousands of hours, and I've only seen one prominent person acknowledge it." Yeah, how this stuff gets inserted is a is a mystery to me. But I've never worked on sets or anything, so I mean, it's definitely there. Once you're able to see the <laughs> how how the subtext weaves together, you have to either consider it synchromistic that it's like the creator winking through the imaginative faculties of these people, or it's someone up high is intentionally putting it in there, like a revelation of the method or some mix of both. There's probably some mix of both. The, then we, she's setting up these bombs. Basically she set up these charges from all the, the things that she stole from the TVA. And when it cuts to this shot and it's a countdown on her timer, it's 9-11. I mean, 11-9. One minute, 19 seconds. That's exact. Like, you have to be quick and pause it right when this shot gets cut to, but it's there. It's 9-11. And she's about to bomb. Great catch. She's bombing the sacred timeline. You know? This is the right. Tower G in dust. <laughs> Tower 7 in dust moment in God We Trust. She's bombing the sacred yeah. timeline. And she finally comes out from the shadows and reveals herself. She says, what is this about? 
it's not about you. And there's the horns. So another initiation moment, perhaps. There's also the yes, the savior symbolism there, if you will. So she pulls off the bombing of the sacred yeah, timeline. You know, I love, I love that. Uh, I love, I love the uh, the way you said that. That this is another initiation, uh, but it is also the very last thing she says. So uh, there's some, there's something really synchronous about it being a beginning and an ending. Uh, with it's, it's kind of got that going on here, but uh, of course Alpha with and the Omega. horns. We, yeah, yeah. And we, we, I think we're kind of going, um, we have the Taurus, we kind of started in Taurus, but now we've moved, we've shifted a bit into the twins of the Gemini aspect, uh, where Mercury meets Mercury, Loki meets Loki, uh, mm. definitely an evolution. But the thing about this quote where she says, it's not about you, uh, that's hitting a chord for me where I am mentally right now. I'm, and that's I'm like really, a dagger in the heart of the Enneagram for the, uh, the individualist. Right, right. Um, I'm seeing a jump from the four and the five where Venus and Mercury kind of come together. Um, uh, but the thing about it's not about you. I'm realizing this is for me, like if, if I were to take this to my heart. Um, I'm readdressing Immanuel Kant. I think she's probably way. a five on the Enneagram. I think we're seeing a four to a five where they, they're coming together for sure. Immanuel Kant is the hierophant in a, in a million different ways. Nietzsche called him the Chinaman of Konigsberg. And the hierophant of the Thoth deck is definitely like an Asian version of a hierophant. Compared to the Rider weight, they definitely uh, made it more Asian, more Eastern. So Immanuel Kant, to me, is the epitome of the hierophant, the epitome of an observer number five uh, personality type. But the Immanuel Kant, the um, the moral imperative that he puts forward, is no longer about you. He definitely, he essentially, he takes the golden rule: do unto others what you would have done unto yourself, and then he hyperbolizes it so that it's beyond what you would do, in such that it is that you would expect the entire world to behave the way that you should behave, and therefore that micro to macro jump means that being a good person is no longer about you; it's no longer what you would do or have others do unto you. It's what you would have the whole world do unto the whole whole world. And so that strange jump of the golden rule that Immanuel Kant did is a hard lesson of realizing it's not all about you. And so that's where I am with that line. Uh, Strangely enough, which is all hailing back to the Hierophant in a major way, which she is wearing the symbols of also. There's a strange thing in the gematria so okay first of all i think in terms of the enneagram loki is a four with a five wing which is basically i can dig let's see how do they i'm sorry yeah four of the five wing means a 
bohemian. <laughs> That's the description of that. Nice. And then the five nice. and, and Sylvie is a five with a four wing, the iconoclast. So when you look at it like that, they're mirroring of each other. Five with a five to a four wing and a four with a five wing. There's a funny thing about uh the gematria of typing out the word 54 where 54 in septenary typed out as letters 54 equals 45. So I don't know. There may be a deeper riddle here about this transition of four to five, five to four, you know? Yeah, buddy. One of the things that people would say about this time period was that, Oh, we're, transit we're going into 5d <laughs> like when all the cootie stuff was going on people were like oh it's just symptoms of it's ascension you know we're going to 5d and that <laughs> sort of placated a lot of people and even d is the fourth letter so when you say 5d you're saying 54 <laughs> <laughs> nice nice i don't yeah, know buddy i think you're i think you're totally right oh, I think kyle you're tips it, 20 buddy. Thank you for the tip. Typically, <laughs> 20 is very appropriate for the super chat. Thanks, buddy. I put a lot of work into preparing this conversation. I appreciate that. Awesome. So, so yeah, buddy, I think you're so spot on with uh, the four and the five. It is a crucial juncture in the Enneagram because the fours still have feeling and the fives tend to be more on the thinking. But that differential between them is where so much creativity comes from. Uh, I call it the consciousness spark gap. It's where a lot of art is uh, birthed out of the difference between thinking and feeling. Um, wow. And, I even, I and that's, think of it, that's what the Mercury figure is. It's the spark in the gap between thinking and feeling, uh, spirit yes. and matter. Yes, totally. It's, it's a crucial uh, location right there. Um, uh, the word love is, uh, generally a 45, um, and the word code is almost the same word. Um, so yeah, the four to the five is a very, uh, it's a very important location. I, I even think of it as the Pythia. I think of it as the, the, the crack in the cave that the, the fumes are coming through uh, that the uh, that the Sybil will breathe in those fumes and then speak in weird tongues, and then the mediator will tell you what the Sybil is saying. Uh, I see that difference between the four and the five is where inspiration fills our thoughts, and uh, and we navigate between what we th- feel and what we think, and then we put it into mouth sounds to convey to communicate to each other. So yeah, that four to the five is crucial, and I love that you're seeing it as also a marriage between the two Lokis. It's pretty spot on. Yeah, it's, it's there. And that might not even be, that might not even be intentional. You know, I don't I, it seems like very elaborate thing to try to weave in, but the personalities of the characters, it fits. It totally fits. It the, fits. It's a great the type five is perceptive, innovative, secretive, and isolated. Perfectly describes her. The type four is dramatic, self-absorbed, temperamental expressive perfectly describes loki um yeah i mean if the five the fear of the five is being useless helpless or incapable that's totally that would totally describe her fear because that's what 
she, we'll, we'll find out more about her character. So let's think about that more when we continue this series. But after the, yep. she bombs the sacred timeline, we're wrapping up here. And the branches start splitting off. And I'm just like, huh, that's what, this is what I see. <laughs> this is what I see with the sacred timeline being branched. It's an image of a, a placenta <laughs> and all of the, the branching blood vessels in it. And of course, after oh, the yeah, sacred brother. timeline is, is bombed, the next shot is the whole store is covered in a red light. So when the twins finally meet, boom, the, the explosion goes off, if you will, you know, the orgasmic moment, the, the little death, the destruction and the, and the creation, something new. And everything is bathed in this red light. It's the sacred timeline. Sack means covering. So this is the sack red. Red. This is the sack red. Everything's red. Sack red. That's exactly what's up, buddy. You nailed it. And she sack goes through her little time timeline. door monolith, waves goodbye to him, and he follows her through. Mobius sees him leave, uh, ditching the TVA, which is a double cross XX C20. Yeah, man. Yep. Now, one one thing that's fascinating, if if we're mapping this on the Enneagram, the four has come to the five. Uh, so there's a, a, a communing or a, a resolution. And the, the progression from there moving into the sixth position is really something else uh, because uh, the six uh it's kind of it's kind of like a booby trap it's like a i call it this uh the siege perilous and that is um it's the seat for the new initiate to come and be tested to see if they have enough worth or value to sit at the council of the rest um so it's just fascinating that the four and the five meet and then they walk he chooses to join her going through the monolith the golden doorway because the next step on the uh, in the seating order of the Enneagram is the Siege Perilous. And he uh, agrees to take on the challenge. It's kind of what happens. And so for that to be XX uh, is really fascinating because uh, that's an OF. That's a, it's a seat number six. Um, yeah, it's strangely poetic uh, from my lens. Oh, and one more thing, Chance. You know they keep changing the signs. That's hanging up in the in the store. Like in one scene, he's like, yeah, he's underneath a sign that says, uh, I think computers. But then they flip the camera around from behind him. Yeah, like here they've got small appliances. This is the one that really stuck out to me. Pain relief. Was pain relief? Yeah. And toy toiletries. Yes. I think that they were kind of messing with the signs in a just in enough way that you're um it's just uh some strange inconsistencies. Uh but yeah, he was standing under gaming systems and then in another shot later they make it look like he was standing under the uh sign for audio. Uh and she walks into the sign for appliances. And there's another guy before him was uh walking by the sign for uh, com- for computers. So in the final scene where he goes through the door, the three signs are like computer 
audio and appliance are the three signs as he exits this entire scene. And what that made me think of were the three aspects of the Eleusinian mysteries are uh, that which is shown, that which is told, and that which is performed. And sometimes you're being told one thing, shown something completely different, and then their actions is a third thing entirely. And so I think it's very important to always be aware that you, we presume that we're going to see what we were told. We, we presume that we're seeing the execution of a contract when, in fact, what, we're, what is actually being done is not what we were told was being done. And so I think that these are three important aspects of just uh, always being aware of when you might be getting pissed on and told it's raining. Well, sometimes you might, you might actually be getting shit on and somebody's asking you how the rain tastes. <laughs> so th these aspects uh, of the Eleusinian mysteries, I find them to be uh, often being manipulated or confounded in cinematic uh, expression in fascinating ways that make us uh, uh, question our own ability to gauge reality. That which is said, what is done, and what is shown. Oh, you're muted. I think we're there, man. Yeah, just buddy. Clock, clock just ticked over to four hours. That was my goal is to maybe be under four. I'm feeling good about this. Um, I love it. <laughs> great weaves in the chat. Thanks, everybody. I really enjoy this. I want to do more of it. So we'll we'll find the time to slot these in as we can and as the inspiration strikes. But hope you guys are all having a great night out there and thanks for tuning in those of you that stuck this out the whole stream or came and caught the replay <laughs> you're very graciously uh welcomed to add to our thought our thoughts and drop your weaves into our telegram chat we'd love to know maybe we missed something huge or maybe we we're teetering on the edge of a realization and we didn't quite click the pieces together and you saw it. So let us know, you know, are, are you smart? Are you secretly the king of this decode? Let us know. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks everyone for being here. You guys uh, really did make the chat like really fun. Loved it. We'll do it again. Gabe, you're the man. Tell them where they can donate to you. Oh yeah. Come on over to slick dissident. I got my uh, uh, cash app down below on the YouTube channel. Come, come give me some. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night. Much love y'all.